Hello and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another hour of podcasting greatness uh, here on the Sensibly Speaking Podcast, brought to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and with video here on YouTube. Isn't this awesome? It's only taken me about six years to finally start sounding maybe a little bit like a DJ. Yeah. Uh, So (laughs) this week, folks, uh, we are talking brainwashing. We're going to get right into this. This is a, a heady topic. It's a very interesting one, and it is extremely controversial one. And by controversial, I mean not necessarily with the, with the public at large, but with the folks in law, in legislation, in academia, in government. This is, this, there's controversy here. There have been statements made in the past about brainwashing. There are academics who say it absolutely does not exist, could not be. People don't, you know, there's no such thing as mind control, blah, blah, blah. We all know uh, I'm not coming into this, you know, from a neutral, objective point of view. We all know mind control is a thing. Thought reform is a thing. Undue influence is a thing. It's even legally recognized as such. We're going to talk about this stuff, and we're going to talk about it with one of my most favorite podcast guests. Uh, we've done a series of podcasts uh, over the years here on my show, and he is always a welcome guest, and I am sure you guys are going to love this one. John Atak, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Chris. Lovely to be here. Awesome, man. So brainwashing. I think the first thing we should do is probably getting right into this. Actually, first, 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 for those of you out there who don't know, let's establish some things. John, who are you and why should people listen to you? Uh, I'm a nobody and there's no reason to listen to me. (laughs) That's the spirit. (laughs) Um, I'm a human being. Um, I was... uh, a peripheral member of Scientology for nine years. I I happened to do quite a lot of it. I, I rose to the high level of operating Thetan level five. I was a class two auditor, a second class auditor, as I like to think of it. I would, before that, I was a first class auditor, though, so I was class one. Um, uh, I did the data series, eva- stop laughing. I did the data series, <laughs> flunk. I did the data series evaluators <laughs> course, which nobody was allowed to do. Um, yeah. I, but I somehow never managed to become what's called a total convert because I wasn't humiliated or abused. I wasn't in the C organization on staff. And the two times that people shouted at me, I shouted back. And it meant that when I left, I stood up and said, why is nobody standing up? <laughs> um, the uh, dear departed Arnie Lerma uh, said of me, um, before the internet and safety in numbers, there was John Atak. Uh, I spent a dozen years helping well, about 500 people get over their experience in Scientology, worked on 200 media stories around the world in all forms of media, uh, about 150 court cases, and was harassed for 16 years they went four years beyond the point where i stopped because they don't know how to stop you know start change stop i'm stopped you can leave me alone but they went on suing me for four years after i'd uh, thrown in the towel i did not sign a silence agreement Uh, i was offered a lifetime salary um, by a representative of the cult if i would give me monthly payments to be silent which uh, is the new way of doing it folks and i think it has happened to a few people along the way there um, interesting that yeah, is very true. that is a new one i've not heard that one. Oh right well i think it's probably started and uh, sue me 
uh, uh, with Vicky Asmaran. Um, ah. the first to, and they say, look, you'll get your monthly check, but you shut up. Right. Uh, um, right. They, they, the offer to me was that they'd get a, a gallery owner to give me a lifetime contract to buy paintings from me. And, Interesting. Um, I was Interesting. I was a bit rude in the reply. I know they tape recorded it, but they should know I tape recorded it too. And I still know of where Of course. But I, I, I was offered a, a, a lump sum to sell my YouTube channel. Oh, wow. To Scientology. How much? They, 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 they did try that. I think, it, if I remember right, it was an insultingly low amount. Oh. I, think it, I think it was like literally a few thousand dollars. Oh, hold out for at least. Oh, yeah. You know, what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, they, well, I played with them. Because they were emailing me, and so I emailed them back, and I and I immediately it was funny because I immediately infoed Tony Ortega on it because I was like, "You got to see this." Did and you then, make and, me an offer I can't refuse? I basically I said, "Look, man, you know if you expect me to give over my right to freedom of speech, mm. you're gonna have to pay me a hell of a lot more than five or ten thousand dollars or whatever it was. I think it was I think it was even less than that. Well, it was really it was derisory. an insulting amount, you know. That is derisory. Yeah. I mean, I sat in a meeting and they had one of um, Sherman Lenski and Heller, their, their top law firm in the room. There, there were eight of them. Uh, I can't even remember. But, but they, they'd flown all the way to the little village in England where I live to, to come and sit and have a meeting with me. And um, wow. I, I sat there and my lawyer said, right, well, until before we start, there needs to be at least a quarter of a million pounds on the table. And I looked at her and said, What? What are you talking about? I'm not, you know, selling that. So I said to them, I said, uh, what are your ranks in the Sea Org? And they refused to tell me. So I left the meeting and they no, flown from Los Angeles all the way here to talk to me. But it's, you know, you know I, I wanted to know if they were higher in rank than midshipman David Miscavige. You know. <laughs> well, now, 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 David is a captain now and he's the one, hey. and it's not, it's not a brevet rank. Yeah, but according he, according to at least according to the testimony to the IRS. Good to know, but but of course yeah. he's the person who demoted Ron Hubbard from admiral to commodore. Because because uh, commodore is lesser than admiral. Absolutely, admiral. <laughs> right. I, I think he should have been a vice admiral personally, or a rear admiral. But you know, we know what they get up. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Good for them as well. Interesting. Um, Jim Morrison the, of the Doors, his father was was an admiral in the U.S. Navy. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah, there you go. Well, I learned something new every day. Yeah. So, okay, let's let's get back on the rails. Uh, brainwashing. Since then, since then, let me yes. the rest of it. That, that <laughs> so from about 1996 onwards, I researched other forms of authoritarian group. I, I've researched a hundred and more so-called cult groups, pseudo-therapy groups, pseudo-religious groups, commercial groups, multi-level marketing, large group awareness trainings, going right back to the Eleusinian mysteries in, you know, 1800 BC or whenever that was, through all sorts of religion, tens and tens of books. You, you know, you want to talk about the Sufis, I can talk about the Sufis till the cows come home. The pigs don't come home because they're not allowed to. Um, <laughs> I studied the psychology the you know how does this stuff work i just became fascinated by the experience i saw people going through and the one experience that really fascinated me was this when i realized that ron hubbard contradicted himself i realized that he was a liar and for me that was the end of everything 
because, as Aaron Hubbard said, honesty is sanity. As Aaron Hubbard said, the road to truth is trod with true steps. So if he was a liar, it was a lie. And I walked away from it, threw it all away and said, I will reincorporate any of it that I find to be true. So far, none of it has had any value to me and it's 36 years later. I have never had the desire to pick up the cans again. There are some trivial things I've shown where they were stolen from, where they were plagiarized from. Basically, Scientology is a system of conditioning, uh, enslavement, psychological enslavement that leads people to become auditing junkies so that they are desperate to do the next level. But just like when you order that package from Amazon, by the time it arrives, you're interested in ordering the next one. So, you know, you've done, o you're on OT2, but that's because you want to do OT3. And then you find that you're inhabited with a load of body thetans um, and all that stuff. I became interested in terrorism, in gangs, you know, terrorism way before 9-11. And going, wait a minute, the groups are different, but the human beings, we, are the same. And what's happening to us is the same. So I came to understand what human predators are like and uh, the techniques that they use and have been exposing those things ever since and finding out that most people don't want to know. Because while advertising does work on everybody I know, it doesn't work on me. So you know, my mission for the last certainly five or six years has been solely to provide preventative material to younger people, to adolescents, and indeed to anybody who'll listen, so that in the couple of hours it takes to explain to somebody what a predator is like and how they behave, you can prevent somebody from having the experience of having to spend 10 years recovering from what a predator did to them. And I've dealt now with about 600 people in recovery from different groups and you know, authoritarian relationships where somebody dominates another person, coercive control relationships. So. That's who I am and that, that's, that's my business. And I've done it without profit financially. I, so if anybody would like to send me a huge amount of money, that's always welcome. And uh, I'm here to boost my YouTube channel, John A. Tech Family <laughs> and Friends. That's the main purpose here, you know. I've, I've got, got over 200 subscribers now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, John's just got a fledging channel and it's just getting going. And he's putting up a lot of good content, by the way, guys. He and his son. And um, it's definitely worth checking out. And I will definitely plug this. And I uh, have no problem promoting John's channel here on that. So check it out. So what um, did you know about brainwashing? Chris? Yes. Well, first off, let's be super clear, because there is all kinds of straw manning, as I mentioned earlier here, mm -hmm. on this particular topic. This is, um, this is not a neutral, objective topic. This is a hot topic amongst certain people, and there are really, really, uh, there's a lot of hostility about this, even in some quarters. So first, what I thought we should do is really clearly define what we're talking about. And I've, I looked a couple things up, and I wanted to run these by you and see what do you think of this, because this is just straight off the internet. I just like looked it up oh, and went, okay. Very, very reliable. Yeah, perfect, right? So here we go. Uh, I mean, you look at, you know, in terms, in other words, I look in a dictionary, and mm -hmm. I looked on Wikipedia, right? Yeah. Um, and people, you know, people can, you know, clown on Wikipedia all day, but it, 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 it is a good source of information to link you to other places. It's good for that, and that's what I use it for. Yeah. Um, okay, the process, noun definition, the process of pressuring someone into adopting radically different beliefs 
by using systematic and often forcible means. Or, of course, the verb, make someone adopt radically different beliefs by using systematic and often forcible pressure. And in Wikipedia, the article defines brainwashing also known as mind control, menticide, d- death of the mind, right? Coercive Finally, persuasion. Yeah. Yep. Thought control, thought reform, and re-education. All these terms we have used. Brainwashing is the concept that the human mind can be altered or controlled by certain psychological techniques. Brainwashing is said to reduce its subject's ability to think critically or independently, to allow the introduction of new, unwanted thoughts and ideas into the subject's mind, as well as to change his or her attitudes, values, and beliefs. What do you think? The first definition has the word forcible, and the second Mm -hmm. doesn't. The first Mm -hmm. definition is technically correct. Um, Brainwashing was not purely a psychological means. It has a very exact beginning. The straw man is is Edward Hunter. It will be brought up every time. People will say, oh, he worked for the CIA. He didn't. He worked for the Office of Strategic Services during World War II, the precursor of the CIA. But when he first used the term brainwashing, which was in the Miami News of 24th of September, 1950, uh, he was no longer an operative of the Central Intelligence Agency. It may, however, have been suggested to him by them. But the straw man aspect of this is very straightforward, that it's this word brainwashing is invented somehow by this guy who works for the CIA. He was a journalist, and let's just throw him away. Let's just say we're not really interested in what he had to say. It may be that he only had one source to to tell the story. Let's instead look to an academic appraisal of brainwashing. Um, and what I have in front of me is this shiny book here. Perfect. This book was published in 1955 by an associate professor at Yale. His main source, he did interview quite a lot of people, but his main sources are published documents, not even private documents, from the Chinese Communist Party. And I'm going to read out something that they said. In It was published in People's China, which was a... a a newspaper published by the Chinese government. It is not easy for old type intellectuals, particularly those from feudal backgrounds, to learn to use this essential weapon for self-improvement in a correct manner. Now, they are talking about what they would call see now, which in the Wade Giles, for those academics among you, is spelled H-S-I-N-A-O, and in the Pinyin, the more recent form is spelt X-I-C-N-A-O. It is said to be possibly a pun on the Confucian C-I-C-N, which is the process of cleansing the heart, which of course in Chinese thinking is where thinking happens. Just as we think love happens there, the Chinese traditionally believed that was the organ of thinking. And it must be cleansed or washed. So having a clear conscience is another way of saying the same thing. You'll find it in Taoist thought going back at least a thousand years. Well, I have a reference from about 1200 AD, actually. So at least 800 years, correct myself. (laughs) But this is the term not invented by Edward Hunter, but used standardly by the Chinese. Its origins are in the first use I know is 1929. This is the clean 
brain or wash, or wash sorry, brain. Literally. Wash mind. He means wash and now means brain. Okay. So it wasn't Edward Hunter who came up with this. And we can forget about whether he belonged to the CIA or what anybody was thinking. As you say, it's a straw man argument. Right. Um, and, and by the way, folks, if you haven't heard about any of this and you don't know who Edward Hunter is, it's okay to kind of just kind of skip over a little bit of this. But it's important because this is the kind of thing that if you do start Googling it or you start looking into it, and even if you look it up on Wikipedia, you're going to find this guy's name coming up. And this is classically used and other similar arguments I'm sure we'll cover by academics right now in courts of law as expert witnesses against um, people who are trying to get some justice and some recompense from cults who abuse them for years or even decades. They go into court. They're like, hey, I was abused. This this happened to me. And these guys come trotting in and say, it's all a fantasy. There's no such thing. Mind control doesn't exist. And, uh, and they're paid for this, by the way. And they come in and do this. And academics, who definitely should know better, uh, write papers castigating brainwashing the entire concept of it they say it's all nonsense so that's the background that we're sort of addressing some of this from in case you're wondering why we're talking about this the way we are going all the way back to the beginning like this so john please continue thank you you've just said they're paid for their expert witness testimony let's give some idea of that that Mm. would be around three thousand to ten thousand dollars a day yep that's right I've been an expert witness, but somehow I didn't attract that those kind of fees. But I, I am an acknowledged expert witness by the High Court in London, in fact, since 1987. So I, too, have some authority, um, but not on the subject of brainwashing. Nobody has expert authority on that as yet. Um, this program definitely occurred in China. It was called brainwashing. And as it says, you know, that this was the essential weapon weapon for self-improvement in a correct manner. At first, there is often the liberal tendency to spare the feelings of one's fellow students by softening one's criticisms. Some students take criticism meetings as an occasion for attacking others in a non-constructive and uncomradely manner. Now, this is talking about what's called thought struggle, self-criticism or self-cultivation. This process was, interest, was introduced by a man called Li Xiao Tu. And I'm, my Chinese pronunciation is probably dreadful. That means that the first... Better bit, than mine. Well, <laughs> the first bit is the, what, what we would use as a surname, as an end name, Li. Li was one of Mao Zedong's chief cadres, uh, that is to say, followers within the communist sense. He studied with Malenkov, who was one of Stalin's chief cadres. And this process was developed in the 1920s in Russia. And the idea is basically to make somebody so hostile to themselves that they will do exactly what they're told. By the time Mao took power on the 1st of October 1949 in China, 200,000 of his followers had been through a systematic program called Sinao. Did it exist? Yes, it did. Was it successful? Well, let's just run forward a little bit. It was then imposed for four years on any anybody who disagreed, and millions of people went through this process. It's well known. There is no argument about it. You know, Wikipedia or wherever you want to go, there's no argument about it. Um, was the process successful? Well, China had been in, in a terrible civil war since the 
the emperor was removed and the Kuomintang under Sun Yat-sen and then Chiang Kai-shek fought a battle to try and over, overthrow the warlords, the communists, whoever. That had been going on for 30 years. So you'd had an incredibly divided, more than 30 years, an incredibly divided society. Now, if you come right up to the, the last few weeks, an incredible documentary called One Child Nation has been released, I think on PBS in, in US on the BBC here. Uh, it's still on the BBC iPlayer here for anybody who can hack that who's outside the country. Um, this is a woman called Nanfu Wang, who grew up in China six years ago, went to the States, had a baby a year ago, and thought, I'll go home and, and see the folks, and I'll make a documentary. And she makes this chilling documentary about the one-child policy in China, um, introduced first in 1979 and enforced from 1983 to 2015. What the one-child policy meant was that once you'd had a child, you were forcibly sterilized. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. And I did not know that. Wow. They have photographic evidence of women being bundled up in sacks and dragged to clinics where they're given probably a tubal ligation. So it's wow. in full. They have, there are people talking in this documentary about live babies being murdered, about babies that were near full term being aborted and poisoned. And they show you, and if you're squeamish, do not watch this documentary. They show you babies that are almost at full term that have been disposed in medical waste bags on rubbish heaps. The Chinese government boasts that 380 million lives were terminated in this fashion. Wow. There's a woman in the documentary who says that she personally, and these are all interviews in China, she personally sterilized or caused forced abortions to 50 to 60,000 women. What I is... don't even have words right now for what you're telling me. Yeah. One child. This is Holocaust level. Yes. This is, hor this is horrifying. Yeah. And it, I mean, you want numbers. Mao Zedong is, is estimated to have killed 70 million people. He is the greatest mass murderer in all history. And there's a big picture of him in Tiananmen Square right now in a, a fascist nation which purports to be communist but is in fact a, a complete tyranny and has been from its inception the story of um jung chang and uh, john holiday have written a biography of mao called mao the unknown story which is the only book in my whole life that i've had to actually put down because i couldn't take it anymore and it took me two weeks to go back to it and that was reading the descriptions of torture that Mao used to like to watch. Now, so you've got this group of people and did brainwashing work where well, you've got a completely divided empire. You can't call China a country, it's 50 countries. You've got a completely divided empire with everybody fighting. Well, now when Nanfu Wang goes and interviews people about the one child policy, even women who were forcibly sterilized say it was a good thing for China. So is it possible to bring about a conformity of thought in a huge population. Yes, it is. Is it still happening? Yes, in the Xinjiang province in the Northwest, 1 million people, 10% of the population of Uyghurs who are a Muslim people who are ethnically different from the 90% Han who are in the Chinese empire. One tenth of the population have been forcibly rounded up and put into camps where they're 
being put into a program where they have to learn Chinese, Mandarin, um, and they basically are having their religious beliefs worked on, their children are being taken from them and not allowed to learn their language, very much the sort of thing the British did in Australia and with Welsh children that the US did with the children of Native Americans, ripping their culture away from them. Um, this is all part of what the Chinese call brainwashing. So is there such a thing as brainwashing? They've called it that, they've done it. The process itself, as I said before, was often forcible, that people were shackled. You would be taken to one of the camps and the first Robert J. Lifton's remarkable text, um, what is it called? It's called Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, published right. in 1961. Um, still an incredible book because he is so precise, he is so exact. The process would be you'd be taken, you'd, you'd been decided that, that you were um, a reactionary. You were a person who didn't accept that Mao Zedong was God on earth and that uh, the Chinese Communist Party, which allowed everybody equal rights to believe that Mao was God on earth, uh, if you didn't believe, or in fact, if you made any criticism, and this is for real, this was going, this has gone on from 1949 to now, any criticism, you're imprisoned. It is a, an offense to criticize the state. And, and if that is not exactly like Scientology, folks, then I don't know what is, because in the only place I've ever lived where it was illegal to criticize the leader was when I lived in Scientology, when I lived on a Scientology base. And by illegal, I mean literally against the justice codes of Scientology. It was Considered in writing. High crime. That's right. And that's why we get declared when we speak up against David Miscavige personally in Scientology or L. Ron Hubbard. So I'm making that comparison because so many of you have watched so many of my content and, and know what I'm talking about with that. Take that, expand it by about a million, and that's what you get, John, describing here in China. It and, scales, in other words. I mean, the, the important part of the process is um, Alexandra Stein, in, in her uh, Terror, Love, and Brainwashing, talks about to isolate and engulf a person. So you take somebody... And as I say, the thing that scared the hell out of me watching One Child Nation was that people that this had been done to were still saying it was a good idea, that China couldn't have survived without this. Well, let's deal with that idea, the idea that you know China controlled its population by doing this. What we know in the West is that if you give people enough to eat and birth control methods, then the population goes down. So Japan, in fact, has a less than 1.5 birth rate and they're getting desperate about it. Most Western countries now have a birth rate of less than two. So you don't have to murder hundreds of millions. You don't have to sterilize hundreds of millions of women against their will and traumatize a whole generation and cause the psychological consequences of that. You don't have to have a society which brutally disregards civil rights to actually get through the Malthusian problem and, and bring your population down. So it was just a continuation of authoritarian barbarism, this program, with the two-child program, which came in under President Xi in 2015, one presumes that women are forcibly sterilized after they've had two children. Right. It's not to say that this is, yeah, exactly. Why would we assume 
that because the one-child program doesn't exist anymore, that they wouldn't extend those same penalties. Let's well, say. the law says you can only have right. two children. No, exactly, that they would extend it out now. So, oh, so now you are going to let you all have two, and, and we're going to keep the exact same control mechanism in place to make sure to enforce that that will. Let me ask you, China is a different country from the United States in many, many, many ways, going all the way down to a culture and education and, and mm-hmm. the way the family itself, the family unit is even regarded. Yes. Very, very different than Western civilization. And some might think that that itself might lend, you know, uh, make it easier to corrupt the minds of or something like that these people as opposed to the western more individualistic you know uh sort of exceptionalist attitude i'm i'm throwing this out there i don't particularly think that our western exceptionalism or individualism safeguards us in any way but i'm wondering whether you think that might be a cultural factor in why china would buy into that wholesale no i i think it was the sheer brutality that that brought china into it that you have to understand with with Mao before he became the leader of the Communist Party he clawed his way there there's a period I think it's 1931 where he has 10,000 troops under his control and a program comes in from Stalin who of course the Russians funded the entire Chinese Communist Party right through it taking power they continued to fund um, the first five-year plan in China um, that Mao actually murders 4,000 out of 10,000 of his own troops on the grounds that they are anti-Bolshevik. So... How did that work? Well, Stalin adopted the technique and it was called a purge thereafter. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Okay. You basically create a situation, and again, this will remind you of Scientology, where people, the main policy which walker talks about in his book is to get people to spy on everyone else snitching culture right yeah the snitching culture and you are terrified of you know i i met a guy from um, estonia who was tricked into going to saint hill the scientology base center in in um, england and um he lasted about a week and he, he you know on his way out because we kind of ran an underground railroad for defectors getting them back home to wherever in the world they'd been tricked from. And he said, you know, one day he, he, he looked at somebody and he said, oh, I know what you do here. It's just like Stalinism. You think one thing, you say another, and you act a third. And they right. threw him out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet they did. They don't like being called on the carpet for what they're actually doing. But but that's not really what's going on. What's really going on is cognitive dissonance is being created in there, and they freak out and just want to get rid of the source of the cognitive dissonance, so they just kick him out. And if we come to cognitive dissonance, all cultures, all human beings, no matter what their cultural background, you can get cognitive dissonance going, because whether you've got an individualistic culture or a family culture, you can find what somebody believes and utilize it against them. That's so, right. you know, the the astonishing uh, things that, that, that people will say, like, you know, the idea that in uh, the United States that there are so many people who speak Spanish. Well, oddly enough, if you look at the names of places in the United States, like Los Angeles, San Francisco, you will find that there actually was a massive Spanish-speaking population there. 
which only in the 19th century, in 1847, I think, when California was bought, did they, were those lands passed over? But the people who lived in them were Spanish speaking in New Mexico, in Texas, in Arizona, in Florida. And of course, in Mississippi and Missouri, they were French speaking. Uh, and up in the north, some of them were speaking Swedish, apparently. You know, it's, no accounting for taste. But this peculiar notion that you can bring together people from all over Europe who've been fighting each other for centuries and they become the white nationalists, you know. It's kind of it is kind of hilarious, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, the irony, the the the, just the stupidity of it all is just it it does wear wear you down a little bit, you know. Watching the multi generational nonsense that goes on, I mean, you're making a brilliant point. I mean, California is filled with names of places that that are Spanish from the from the top to the bottom. Yeah, and they and, in Spanish and, for a couple of hundred, few hundred years. By the exactly, time. you know, the, 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 and, and people just don't even like think this obviously. It's like, uh, duh, you know. Anyway, um, I, I live in one of the few countries that hasn't had a major shift of population in what nine hundred years, yeah. ten sixty six. Yeah. Everywhere, but look at how they're years. reacting now in London to the influx of immigrants that do come in. I mean, they're freaking out. Their 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 heads are exploding. I've seen the the you know some of the uh, racist stuff that comes out of England or London just as much as it comes out of the deep south. So again, south, if, you know? if you looked, let's shift out of China and think about Germany. Germany was the most sophisticated group of states because of course it only became a country at the end of the nineteenth century, but this produced some of the greatest artists, some of the greatest philosophers. Um, some of the greatest scientists and things. scientists, yeah, yeah, big time. Germany was the seat of academic uh, affluence, I guess you'd say. I mean, there was a lot of stuff coming out of Germany. And when uh, we're in 1914, in 1914, yeah. the German population believed that they were bringing civilization to the rest of Europe. Um, right, where you know that they were coming up against the feudal system that still dominated Russia, Austro-Hungary, and Britain, that they were bringing radical, new, wonderful ideas. And what we got was ultimately the Nazis, because That's German right. nationalism rose up and found its enemy. And so is it possible to influence a whole population of people in a very short period of time? If you brutalize them, if you terrorize them, if you starve them, it's possible to do things with human beings very rapidly. And the brainwashing program came out of that, that by the 1950s, it was no, nece- it was no longer necessary, though a million people were killed in the first year in China. They went out. Part of the, the program that uh, university students took in China was that they'd go out in a, in a group of about a thousand and they would watch an execution. And an execution in China would often include such things as death by a thousand cuts. Oh wow, those are those aren't just expressions. Those are no. those are realities. Yeah, somebody would be tied and they would be cut and cut and cut until they bled to death. Jesus. And the idea was to bring up a fervor in the crowd watching. You know, the hatred towards the other. It's medieval. It is medieval and it's still functioning in our society today. Right. You know, the, of course the, it is. I if America could televise executions, they would. Yeah. I mean, it, just to be just to be really kind of cynical right now, but yeah, public executions were always were always attended, and they still are. 
you know and there are people who get their jollies by by seeing other people being harmed which, which is not very pro-social no it's not it's not, not. Very good for you. So, okay, so we've answered the question pretty thoroughly through China, uh, through Germany, and there are so many examples I could bring up right now of how Americans are brainwashed on so many topics, but we don't even have to go there. I think we've made the point that it is a real thing, and it can and has worked in the past, and that the brutality is, is, uh, is an important component of this, or certainly at least the threat of brutality, but it really does have to be followed through on a few times and examples but have to be made, you know. What, what happens then is, is a transition, which is, is why I picked up on the word forcible. The brainwashing yeah. program was forcible and you will see aspects of that. I mean, uh, look at the film, The Report, and I think everybody should look at the film, The Report, that's come out in the last month about the Feinstein Report into torture used by the CIA uh, and the level of brutality that was accepted. And I would say that a culture had been created within the CIA where people were willing to do things which are absolutely inhumane. I mean, they killed people. Uh, there was one guy who was, they call it waterboarding, 183 times. He wasn't waterboarded. Waterboarding is a technique that the Spanish Inquisition first designed. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yep, used in the 17th century in Spain. We did it first. Um, uh, so, you know, all these Spanish-speaking people, they know more about it. But waterboarding means putting a towel over somebody's face and wetting the towel so you get a drowning response. The waterboarding done by the CIA meant pouring water through the towel and half drowning people. It was totally ineffectual. The guy who was waterboarded 183 times gave no intelligence of any kind. Um, the British had abandoned torture in the 1970s because eventually it was accepted it doesn't work. But it does work. It can break a human being for a lifetime. It can traumatise them so thoroughly that they will never function again. Again, there were detainees in Northern Ireland who were completely illegally uh, imprisoned and put through the hooding program and the stress positions program and the we don't let you go to the toilet part which is what Don Rumsfeld didn't talk about when he said he stands up to work every day people were put through that program who are still now receiving counseling to try and help them and that was in 1971 so you can break and tame people what was discovered along the way though and Ron Hubbard was very interested in this he offered to sell his brainwashing to President John F. Kennedy, he wrote a letter saying, you can buy my brainwashing. He wrote the brainwashing manual, pretending it was a Russian document. And he frequently talked about brainwashing and he certainly believed it did exist. He also in 1952, of course, said, we have ways of making slaves here. And I think that that's where it moves over, that what the mind control program run by American, Canadian and British intelligence programs like MK Naomi, MK Ultra. Uh, Project Bluebird in the U.S. Navy, um, those those programs were designed to intimidate people, but not to use violence anymore. Then you get to slip over into the, well, can we do this just using coercive control with no threat of violence? And the answer is, yes, we can. Um, Naomi Klein, who, who I think is the most remarkable journalist working today, wrote a book called Shock Doctrine, where she showed, she said, no, the CIA programs did work. 
that they put out the propaganda that it hadn't worked. So we'd leave them alone. They found out ways of influencing people where you don't have to use BZ or, of course, they introduced LSD to the to the world as part of their mind control program, which Ken Kesey was very grateful about. Um, that and we have to say, folks, that there's every reason to doubt the veracity of, of government statements on this matter because it's in their vested interest to want to control populations. I mean, it's not, this is not conspiratorial dot connecting. We've had, all of this is documented. This is historical fact that these things happened. You know, yeah, let me say something terrible. Let me say something absolutely terrible. I, I saw the report last week. It's only just been released. I've been aware of the Feinstein report for a long time, but I hadn't read it. And I may have to, even though it's 650 pages long. Here is what appalls me. Barack Obama decided not to release that report. Barack Obama decided not to prosecute anyone who was responsible, and there, there were deaths on this program. Nobody was prosecuted. I say, somebody who talks about transparency and accountability should be held accountable. I believe that George W. Bush and that Barack Obama should be tried as war criminals. And I believe this whole bipartisan Democrats versus Republicans is two power lobbies fighting each other. And they're fighting against each other, not for the sake of serving the people, but for the sake of serving a neoliberal or neoconservative agenda, neither of which gives a damn about the, the regular person in the Rust Belt or you know, the working Joe, it, or about anybody who's got a blue collar. This is, this is like Lehman Brothers. I, I don't know if you saw the documentary where Richard Falk is it, speaks about, he, you see him on video going, I want to tear the heart out and I want to see them die while I'm watching them. And this is the head of the corporation that bankrupted the world. He, by the way, was never charged with any offense and is now running another multi-billion hedge fund. So Yeah, exactly. So, it, so predators. It, it, I mean, kind of, you know, oversimplification for sure, but I'm going to say this anyway. If you guys can't see the brainwashing that's going on at all levels of society with this, You're you know what I mean? I mean, come on, you know? Yeah. All right, but fair enough. I, like I said, I don't want to engage in a lot of oversimplification, and you're doing a great job of getting into the details of this, and I really appreciate it because you know all these things are just off the tip of your tongue, and I, I'm aware of a lot of this stuff, but I, but I, but the specifics elude me sometimes, and that's why I love talking to you about this stuff. Thank your, you. your your memory is just steel trap, and I love. I've got that. it written on the back of my hand. <laughs> okay, now I've got some other points I want to cover with this, and we've covered the workability or the the, the fact that it that it's a, a legit operation that you can brainwash people, and I think we've shown at a at a mass level, which is really where it's most effective, or what it was really designed for was mass, you know, uh, it, it, mass manipulation. Let's put it that way. Um, but I'm going to take up a couple more points of of faux debunking that has been done on this, right? The, these these lines that come out from the academics or from the, the government. In faux debunking. Yeah, faux debunking. That's right. Uh, beginning, and I'm just going to read some, I'm going to read something here and then I'm going to say something I want you to tell me what you think of this. Um, 
beginning in 1953. This is quoted from the Wikipedia article, which a lot of people could see, which is why I actually pull from theirs, because I think it's a place most people go to find out stuff. Beginning in 1953, Robert J. Lifton interviewed American servicemen who had been POWs during the Korean War, as well as priests, students, and teachers who had been held in prison in China after 1951. This is the book we referred to earlier, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism. In addition to interviews with 25 Americans and Europeans, Lifted interviewed 15 Chinese citizens who had fled after having been subjected to indoctrination in Chinese universities. We've just discussed some of that. Yep. Lifton's 1961 book uh, was based on this research. Lifton found, now here's the, here's, the, here's the debunk or the faux debunk, right? Lifton found that when the POWs returned to the United States, their thinking soon returned to normal contrary to the popular image of brainwashing. Now, my statement on that is that this isn't contrary to what we know about thought reform at all. It's another straw man, I think, because if someone's indoctrination starts to wear off, it's because they're in an environment where it's not being reinforced or cultivated, which is why cults and governments have to create and maintain a bubble world. A prison of belief, if you will, yeah. to borrow the phrase from Lawrence Wright. So, what do you what do you think about what I just said? I think it's absolutely true. That the the first point is that Wikipedia makes a slight error there. Um, ah. One of the twenty five Europeans continued to believe, ah. and he had been a Catholic priest. Right. So he and let's undercut that. Uh, the English writer Somerset Maugham, novelist uh, Somerset Maugham said that the spiritual teachings of Ignatius Loyola were the most effective form of brainwashing ever devised by man. So let's cut before the Chinese that when the Catholic Church was suddenly the Protestant revolution that occurred, the Reformation that occurred, the Counter-Reformation was created. And if you look at this little book, and you can, it's still used in the training of Jesuits, and of course the Jesuits train all Catholic priests. Just like to put that in there. And the head of the Jesuit college uh, was busted for child molesting. Uh, was ten- he? Yep. You know, uh, it's so funny because the Jesu- Jesuits are always positioned, at least to, to my experience, the Jesuits are always positioned as the smart guys, the learned ones, the educators, the ones who don't get in trouble. And there you there we have the head of the Jesuit order. In Rome, the, the man who is the head of, and this is the head of the training of all priests. Um, let's get some numbers in here that in the Australian Royal Commission inquiry, there were 8,000 cases of abuse by priests and 500 priests in Australia alone were named. So you have a corrupt organization. You know, let's, let's not beat about the bush here. Uh, I have nothing at all against Christianity. I, I'm absolutely fine as long as Christians are pro-social in their activities, life-affirming, that's absolutely fine, good for them. Many great things have been done. And I am absolutely opposed to the molesting, the rape of children. And that we are talking now about tens of thousands of cases which have not been effectively dealt with to this day. And we've got spotlight about the Boston um, invest, Boston Globe investigation. This has happened in dioceses throughout the world. Okay, one of their training manuals, and it's well worth looking at, it's very short, you can probably find it online because copyright ran out in the 17th century. You know. 
this is how you get somebody back into the Catholic Church if they've become a Protestant. That was its first thing. So you can, for example, you know, and again, in Scientology, you'll have seen creative processing. There are people who, and I'm one of them, who define hypnosis as guided imagination. That's all it is. If you can guide somebody's imagination, get them to believe something, then you've hypnotized them. You've altered their reality. You've brainwashed them, let's say. Um, so, for example, you sit somebody down and you say, yeah, what if you're wrong? What I want you to do is to imagine that you're in hell and you are feeling the flesh dripping from your bones. It's called creative processing by L. Ron Hubbard. And uh, borrowed, right, of course. course. Yes. Alistair Crowley, of course, is the person that he got the technique from, which I have proved in a, a paper called uh, Possible Origins for Dianetics and Scientology, which academics don't seem to want to read. Um, but they've got their problems, I've got mine. I, I would like to say, actually, if there are any academics watching, that if they dismiss my work, that, that let's sell these people a piece of blue sky. My book about Scientology has 1,117 reference notes in it. And you can go and check the sources, and you'll find that most of them are Ron Hubbard. So, you know, there's <laughs> um, it's, you're exactly right that Normally, what it requires is um, a reinforcing environment. But one Catholic priest, so he'd been through all of the spiritual teachings of Ignatius Loyola, and then he'd been through all of this stuff. I mean, watch the movie Silence, which I think Scorsese directed, um, which yes. is about the Jesuits trying to get back into Japan after Christianity had been banned there. And the punishment for Christianity was being crucified. <laughs> it's like, there's oh dear, things people do. That the I in fact I mentioned that because I read the book by Shusako Endo when I was about 20, which is a very long time ago. And it really impacts on me because Shusako Endo is is a 20th century Japanese Christian writing about these historical events. What was interesting was that. He evidently, his culture was Japanese. He didn't write like a European. There, there were things that he just accepted as perfectly normal, which to you or me would be kind of odd. You know, like in China for 1500 years, when your, your daughter was seven years old, you break her foot. You know, what? yeah, you'd break her foot. 1500 years this went on. It's called the three inch lily. Don't put any illustrations up. Chinese women were meant to have feet that were three inches long you break the foot you bind it and the woman the girl will never be able to run and never be able to walk properly for 1500 years that one of the most sophisticated cultures the world had ever seen did this because it was acceptable now at that point you can throw brainwashing out of the window once a culture is except you know the, the romans when they were invaded by the huns they started getting their babies and putting boards on their heads so they would have this high, flat forehead like the Huns did, because they admired it. They thought it was a fashion statement. There are certain African people where they hoop the neck. The, the Zingu in the Amazon put in these things in their ears and in their lips and lower down in their bodies, but we won't talk about that. This, because it's culturally accepted that you behave in this way. So. If you can find me a completely sane, intelligent group of human beings who live in a totally moral way for us to, you know, compare ourselves to, good luck. 
basically. Yeah, big time. We, we accept all sorts of things. People drink uh, Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola and Colas. I, I think it's Nepal. One of the Himalayan states has banned these drinks because, as the health minister says, there are no benefits to this. The only thing that's good for you it in, is, in it is the water. The rest of it is hurting you. The rest of it is bad for you. You know, the 23 spoons of sugar. and the, But our culture accepts that. You know, supersize me. You know, I mean, and you will be supersized. You know, no doubt about it. We take things, exactly. We take things on. Uh, supersize. Exactly. What was his name? The guy who made supersize me. Um, he eats McDonald's and supersizes and puts on a massive weight. Morgan, that's right, Morgan, Morgan Spurlock. Spurlock. Well, like you said, you can just kind of throw the brainwashing out the window at that point, right? It's how you create a culture. And if, you know, looking at pictures of lynchings, you know, there's a picture on the internet of, of which is uh, the remains of a carcass of a black man that's been barbecued. And behind it, there are all these folks smiling and drinking beer. Now, I can't get my head around that. But I you can't can either. a culture where hatred is a vital aspect. And this brings us, let's, you know, let's go sideways into this idea that's called the um, seat theory. Um, the sociopath, apath, empath triad. It's seat theory. I mean, it's silly. This is a, a psychologist called Jane McGregor, who's actually at university about six miles away from me. I have yet to meet her, but I read her book. She hypothesizes that our society consists of three types of people, empaths, sociopaths, and what she calls apaths. And you can pretty much, you know, Schopenhauer, the philosopher, reckoned that 60% of people were, you could do anything with. Stanley Milgram proved it. But, and what happens, she reckons, in society, and this is a bit like Hubbard's suppressive person thing, only he was one, um, the sociopath gets the apaths to attack the empaths. And that is the history of the world. That as you look back in history, you'll find that monarchs, tribal leaders, chieftains, are for the most part sociopaths, narcissistic sociopaths. They are astonishingly destructive. You know, for example, in England, in our history books when I was a child, we were taught about good Queen Bess, Elizabeth I, marvelous woman, highly educated. What you're not told, you have to read a bit more deeply, is that in her long reign, she spent more time with one court official than any other, her chief torturer, discussing methods of torture. You're kidding. Wow. It was, an offense. Find out, man. it was an offense to show a portrait of her that had not been approved. All portraits of her were cancelled and had to be destroyed, and she, the one portrait was sent out. It looked nothing like her because, of course, she'd lost skin because she'd put lead white on her face her hair had fallen out when she was a little girl and oh yeah this is the is this the woman that they recently made the movie they've made one or two about yeah they did if they did a few movies that yeah where they, they've talked about this all right and her sister bloody mary who's a catholic gets the really bad rep all right <laughs> but you look at it and it, power tends to corrupt absolute power absolutely well, there is a there is a, a there is a bigger meta world going on here that outside the brainwashing thing that we're talking about because in the ultimately what we're talking about is a tool, 
that is used to manipulate people, right? It's a, it's a tool, it's a procedure, it's a methodology. It consists of a number of different techniques. Um, basically, anything that will cause harm is capable of manipulating somebody's thoughts. And it's also things that can cause... Exactly. There's also the other end of the spectrum where euphoria can can cause somebody's thinking to be changed or manipulated in a, in a not so great way, even though they feel great. You know, auditing, for example. Euphoria and as you said, it's part, almost always part of the process that what you're doing is you're slamming people between mania, you could say. That's right. And terror. And you've talked with our good friend Yuval Or about this, that you can in induce awe in a person and at that point their thinking capacity collapses and you can then inflict a certainty on them the certainty that hitler is right the certainty that stalin is right there's a great movie um called the inner circle by uh director called konchalova andre konchalova and it's about stalin's film projectionist and he's the guy who he shows the films to Stalin every night and watches the Politburo getting drunk and people being put on the list and murdered. And he thinks that Stalin is just the most incredible man who ever lived. I remember I recommended it to Vaughan, Robert Vaughan Young, and he was 20 years in the Sea Org and was the man who announced Hubbard's death, the head of PR, all of this. And he watched the movie and he said, that's what the Sea Org's like. You're the projectionist. You see it all happening around you, but you believe that ultimate victory will be achieved once you've, you know, destroyed enough lives. Everybody will be happy. And That's exactly right. I was there and I <laughs> lived it for 17 years. And if there is anything I get to talk about with some authority, it's this. Yes. And, you know, and I, I and it's not a lot of things I get to talk about with certainty, with authority, but this is one of those things. And I'm telling you that that is a great description of exactly what it's like, because you do not see what is right in front of your eyes. You do not see it. You do not see it for what it is. You see it as something different. And that that is thought reform. You're reforming a person's thoughts about the things that they are seeing and hearing and experiencing. And you, you, you know, again, coming to the cognitive dissonance, uh, Festinger's model, which Steve Hassan has adapted into his bite model that you control behavior, information, thought and emotion. I would say you also control time and environment. Uh, Good so points. You can yeah. bite, bite in two different ways there. But... Perhaps I believe that information control is, is the most important aspect of this. And when I, you know, we're having this, this discussion because Steve's, Steve Hassan's published The Cult of Trump and a, a, an associate professor at a Chicago university has written a paper um, published in a, a, a magazine called Religion and Politics in which he reviews the title of the book Exactly. Not read it. You know, academics are getting lazier and lazier. Um, and he doesn't like the word cult. And he the, apparently, you know, the word brainwashing is not really a word that Steve uses. I've known Steve for 30 years. It's not a word we tend to use because we don't want to get into a populist misunderstanding. We want to be precise. I tend to talk about exploitative persuasion, undue influence, coercive control. And Zella says that that brainwashing is not recognized by psychiatry. It's not recognized in the law. So let me just read. This is the current manual of the American Psychiatric Association, DSM-5. And it says, 
Uh, DSM-5 dissociative disorders not otherwise specified, and then gives us some numbers. Identity disturbance due to prolonged and intense coercive persuasion. Individuals who have been subjected to intense coercive persuasion. Exemplar gratia, for, for example, brainwashing. Oh, they, psychiatry no longer believes in it. This is the current edition published in 2012. Um, for example, brainwashing, thought reform, indoctrination while captive, torture, long-term political imprisonment, recruitment by sects, cults, another word which apparently they don't use, by terror organizations, may present with prolonged changes in or conscious questioning of their identity. Who right. am I anymore? Now, I went back as far as 1987 to check that definition through all of the editions. It's been there. It's never been removed. So whatever the American Psychological Association pronounced in a single court case that was actually to do with false memory and repressed memory, as I understand it, not to do with brainwashing, is irrelevant. They had not the expertise to talk on it. Psychiatrists who deal with the actual mental disorders caused by such things, psychologists are there just to look at the normal stuff, <clears throat> maybe offer a bit of counselling for normal problems. Intense problems like this one, disso dissociative disorders, where somebody, they can't be in their own head. You know, like the Scientology, they've gone exterior. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, they, it's that serious. And no, it's a it's a thing. And it's um, uh, this comes up and the, and these and the, and and people will rely on the fact the Zeller guy who writes this article about about Hassan's book. It was you know, it was just taking Hassan to task on the cult of Trump, which we did a whole podcast on here a week or two ago um, that it, it's it. It's ignorance feeding more ignorance, you know. It's and it's and it's agendas, and and this is this is what really bugs me about this. And one of the things that I was so disappointed in when I first became exposed to the academic community of the ex-cult world is how many cult apologists there are in the mm -hmm. academic community. And I just keep calling them that because that's the phrase I use. But you know, scumbags is another term you could use. Uh, but these are just people who are intellectually dishonest, and I, I wanted to I wanted to quickly before I forget plug what you just said about information control because I think that you're absolutely right that that is the senior letter of the bite model uh, because information coming in that's how you manipulate people that's how you get the emotional manipulation and the thought manipulation and to a degree environmental manipulation but you you know there there are other things going on with that too but i think you're i think you're right about the the flow of information available to a person and how it is given to them is is crucial to the whole technique and how you teach them to interpret reality which yeah. is where the environment comes all the way back in what are you seeing and what does it mean you know, Freudians dream Freudian dreams and Jungians dream Jungian dreams. Scientologists <laughs> right. just dream about Xenu and the body thing. Oh, I hope nobody <laughs> said that. Um, but right, right. We, you know, I, again, the reason that Shusako Endo's silence was perhaps so important to me, I was no longer a Christian. I decided that I didn't believe in a personified deity at the age of 13. Um, just... I don't know, I wasn't clever enough to work it out. I just decided I didn't believe it. So by the time I read this book, I'm not a believing Christian, but I realized that I was part of a community that derived its moral codes from that place and that those moral codes might, some of them, be uh, suspect. So, for example, 
and this is a dangerous topic, sex. That the idea of sex, if you look back into the first three centuries of Christianity, there are no prohibitions. Jesus never says anything about it. Paul, who's maybe a bit odd, says it's better to marry than to burn because you'll go to hell if you don't marry. So adultery is against the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. But there are no prohibitions on masturbation. There are no, then you get this saint, and I don't think he was very saint, called Jerome. And his writings, you know, it's like when um, Amish people, they sneak away and they read the Bible in English because they don't understand the kind of high German version. So they're told, just as you know, in the 16th century people were told the Latin Vulgate, they didn't understand. When people read, the, the Amish read, this, there's nothing about which way you crossed your suspenders, apparently, in the Bible. In the 16th century, people found there were no priests, no monks or nuns in the Bible. These are inventions that came much later. And every culture, you know, comes around and asserts its authority and doesn't want you to think too much. We, we have always lived in authoritarian societies um, with two exceptions that I'm aware of. I'm a passionate fan of a sociologist called Ellie Sagan. Uh, he wrote a book called At the Dawn of Tyranny, which is examining how tribal societies became kingships. Mm. Um, so he talks about Uganda, which is where Uganda comes from. He talks about the Homeric Greek, Agamemnon, Manolais, all of these people. He talks about Hawaii because they overthrew the taboos. It's their word. It's this spot of ground you can't walk on or they'll kill you. <laughs> um, two years before Captain Cook went and messed with them. So they were willing to talk about what they believe. So he talks about that. He later writes a book called uh, The Honey and the Hemlock about the original democracy in Athens, you know, where women were kept indoors and had to where veils and slaves were kept and only men could vote and, you know, but it was democracy, hey, which he compares to the original US democracy where women were kept indoors. And <laughs> right, they kept, right. They kept, men kept slaves, but they, you know, he then moves on to a book called Citizens and Cannibals where he looks at the French Revolution and what he's spent a lifetime doing is saying, is democracy possible and how? Mm. And it's mind boggling you get into this and go, it must be, please. There must be a way that, that we can learn to collaborate with each other, to settle all of this hatred and, you know, to go forward to have a lovely environment in which to live by stopping fighting wars and by achieving great things. Yet our society in every generation is mired into warfare, which when you look at it is unnecessary and stupid. You know, in 1958, the CIA report said uh, the U.S. will there will never be will never be able to stop Ho Chi Minh from taking over Vietnam because the Vietnamese people all want him. And having been oppressed by the Chinese before the French for over a century, the Vietnamese want to be an independent nation and make their own mind up. If you go in there, you'll lose. That was 1958. They were right. It took 17 years to prove them right. And what, 58,000 American lives lost in the conflict, as many from suicide and Agent Orange poisoning since, and 2 million, perhaps, Vietnamese lives to drop more munitions than were used in the whole of World War II on a tiny little country to destroy 
environment. Why? Why are we that stupid? You know, why, why given our vast brains and our wonderful intelligence, can't we actually work out how to uh, get on together and live with one another instead of creating all of this factioneering and allow people to have whatever opinions they have? I think that some of the uh, cult apologists, the people who, or new religious movement apologists, they haven't, they're doing what they're doing for, for the best of reasons, for liberal reasons, because they believe in free will. They believe that everybody can make their own mind up and it's wrong to think that you can influence people. They're misinformed. None of them are psychologists. They're all sociologists or historians of religion. And just to say that Stanley Milgram's experiments were unethical, which they were, doesn't mean they didn't happen. And the criticisms of Zimbardo are frankly pathetic having gone through them we do herd together we are willing as a species to murder other human beings and enjoy it and revel in it the glory of war it's an aspect of human culture and we've got to grow up we've we've got to mature into something else because otherwise we're not going to have any grandchildren surviving you know we're, we're doing such awful stupid things we have such power and the thing is we do have the good sense i'm sure and the intelligence even cult apologists or you know to sit down so i sit with them i had eileen barker who's one of the famous ones they have a talk in manchester and i thought there could be three people there and i walk in the room and the room's full and eileen's in the first row so this poor woman had to listen to me droning on for two hours and you know, making sure that everybody knew she was in the room. I was polite because I seek to be that. And she's what, 83 now. But she's been the central pillar of, of this thing. And I, I, I think she's quite genuine. I don't think she's a sociopath. I think that she really thinks she's dealing with human liberty. And I can understand that when Ted Patrick and people came along in the 70s and started kidnapping and abusing members of groups, that they were defending against that. What they're not understanding is you have to look at the whole picture. When somebody tells me that she was on the Rehabilitation Project Force in Scientology, and when she fell pregnant, she was screamed at for two weeks to have an abortion. When she refused, she was put on a, a thing with another pregnant woman where they had to shovel human excrement from a pit into wheelbarrow from one pit into another. I take note. I'm not willing to say, as Gordon Melton does, that the Rehabilitation Project Force is, is a really good thing. You know, it's, you know, you have to listen to all accounts. If you are going to be fair, by all means, listen to the uh, what current members of a group believe. But listen to the defectors. You know, my work is not cited by academics um, on the grounds that I used to be a Scientologist. And it's like, well, no, I, I've got no axe to grind. When Kendrick Moxon, the head of their litigation department, sat me in a deposition, he said, do you think you were brainwashed in Scientology? I said, no. I was hypnotized a bit, but brainwashed, no. You know, uh, and well, and this and this is it. it I, I, you're absolutely right that all the things you're saying are completely sensible and perfectly belong on my sensibly speaking podcast. And I I do need to say that you know, and, and also reinforce and plug what you're saying there about the academics because I give them a hard time and I call them scumbags and I call them this and that, and I totally get what you're saying and I get where they're coming from and I know that 
there, there, you can create a mindset with yourself that you're the justice one. You're the, you're the guy who's fighting for human rights. And I get where that viewpoint comes from. I am based their intellectual dishonesty because I, in the series of videos I did reviewing the book Scientology, which was <laughs> by academics for academics about Scientology, and I broke down without, chapter without by chapter. Without bothering to find out much about Scientology. Well, that was the thing. Is I, bu- is I broke it down chapter by chapter, video for everyone, very extensive video, take mm-hmm. quotes, show how every single one of them did nothing but regurgitate Scientology's promotional pieces. Yeah. That's all they do. And they think they're doing something intellectual and helpful. And it's, I have to call it out because they're supporting a destructive group, as you well know. And so I, I have to say, yes, you're right. You know, and I also have to say to everybody, look, guys, at the same time, let's remember the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You know, everybody thinks they're fighting the good fight. It doesn't mean that they are. Yeah. And and, and we have to have a certain caution, but let's 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 do it. Let's talk about (laughs) Gordon J. Melton. Yeah. Um, This year I've been I've spoken at (laughs) poor Eileen Barker, but I've I've corresponded with both Gordon Melton, who finally four emails in, answered me, and I thank him for that, and said, no, he didn't want to talk about Scientology. Um, I've also been in touch with Massimo Intravini, who is the, I believe, the founder of Chesno, which is the central group to which these people belong. Um, a guy who I uh, exit counseled, oh, I don't know, 1994, um, he got in touch with me yeah, we were in touch up until about five years ago and then fell out of touch. But he got in touch with me to say, hey, there's this thing called Kabbalah and it looks great. And look, I found this academic journal, this Chesno journal that says it's great. And I said, yeah. And four months ago, they said that my work was, was a waste of time in a single sentence dismissing me, which was actually written by Massimo Intravini. But Intravini wrote, a, I thought, a very good piece about um, the attack upon religious freedom in China. And so I wrote to him and I said, this is a very good piece. And um, he wrote back a very positive, you know, acknowledgement of that. Um, I would say that where people are fighting for religious freedom, you know, I think that Falun Gong is is crazy. You know, I think all the Hussein Taoist, you know, and, and I'm, you know, OK, I admit it. Since I was 17, I've been reading Taoist texts there. It's all public now. Right through Scientology, I always believe that Lao Tzu, Jiang Tzu, and the Buddha and Jesus were much more important than Ron Hubbard. I'm sorry, that was just the way it was. I thought Hubbard had a, a way of helping people therapeutically to then get ready to go and get enlightened, you know? And uh, if anybody wants to see my current view on enlightenment, there's a video on my channel, which I haven't been plugging hard enough during this conversation. <laughs> um, It it was great. This guy wrote to me and he said, no, you're wrong about enlightenment. You're just a travel agent. You haven't been there. And you're just talking about it. And I said, well, fair enough. What about you? And he said, here's a video of my guru. (laughs) It's like, so you've been there, right? (laughs) But um, in in talking about the, the, you know, Hussein Taoism, the alchemical Taoism, the idea that you can live forever by certain breathing practices and not emitting your own semen, which we don't talk about until you get into the deep levels here, the secret of the golden flower, as it's called, um, recirculating the chi. I 
I want nothing to do with that. But the what's called Zheng Lao Taoism, where you look at the texts of Lao Tzu, and I admit you can go and buy my translation of of the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. It's true. I, I, I've spent I spent over thirty years working with this text, which I think is a it's a wonderful exploration of thought. It's very easy to take it and then turn it into this nonsense. And it's very easy to take any teaching and turn it into a nonsense. If we come back to Gordon Melton, and we are gonna come back to Gordon Melton, his little book, Scientology, is exactly what you say. It is the PR pack of the Church of Scientology, the so-called Church of Scientology, in which he, for example, talks about um, Ron Hubbard being a blood brother of the Blackfoot Bakuni people. And the, the only reference he has for this is a letter from a man called Tree Many Feathers. And I mentioned Kendrick Moxon in a deposition earlier. During this deposition, Moxon pushed this paper. He says, you say that he wasn't a blood brother, but here we are, the tribal council of the Blackfoot say he was. And I said, where does it say tribal council on that letter? And he looked and went, oh, you're right, it doesn't. He said, Tree Many Feathers, who signed that letter, was an eighth blood Blackfoot, which means he can just claim membership of the people, an eighth is, is the, the minimum. And he said that uh, when interviewed by the LA Times by uh, Bob Wilcox and Joel Sapel, who I worked with for five years without any credit for what I did, sod the pair of them, thank you very much. But they did do excellent articles and they interviewed the historian of the Blackfoot who said we never had blood brothers. They, they interviewed the deputy chief of the thing who said we never had blood, blood brothers and they interviewed Tree Many Feathers who said well there of course aren't any records so I decided that I'd make him a blood brother and that's Melton's evidence that he was a blood brother that and, and you're kind of going that's not really very deep research. Melton also was with James Lewis who's the editor of the book on Scientology talking about in Japan, in Tokyo, after the sarin gas attacks, which... Oh, my God, this story. Yeah, please tell where, us. Where oh. He announces to the press that it's not possible the Dom Shinrikyo, who've paid for them to go there, were involved yeah, they, in this. They do this press conference in Japan, yeah. right after a sarin gas attack, that this cult executed on a number of public people in the metro system of Japan, practically killed tens or hundreds of people. They and these two rush killed. off to Japan. Would have killed thousands of people, but a very brave railway guard, realizing what was happening, evacuated. He lost his life. Twelve others did. Um, Shinrikyo had also, they had a heart surgeon who was murdering people. Um, but it was then, a couple of days or, or soon after this pronouncement is made, it cannot, it is not possible, James Lewis and Gordon Melton stand there saying this, they found enough sarin gas to kill four million people. And if you talked about the doctrine behind that, which is called POA, and if you watch the video on my channel, we're getting warmed up now, which is called Karma, I talk about POA there. POA is, is a doctrine, a crazy doctrine in Buddhism, whereby you accelerate somebody's karma. So their idea was they were going to kill everybody in Japan, and then it all be happy. They could be reborn. <laughs> at the end, hmm, not sure about that. Just proving once again that people can literally rationalize anything. Melton was paid as an expert witness for the children of God, who start, started systematically abusing children from the age of three. That's right. He was a, an expert witness for Witness Lee. Um, 
he wrote about Ramtha and the Church of Iam. When I went to him and said, look, what I'd like to do is to deconstruct your 64-page booklet for Tony Ortega's side, one point at a time, and in the spirit of academic friendship, I will send the piece to you before it's published for your response. And he said, no, thank you. So wow. he also said that he'd longed to write a book about Scientology, but Sister Reitman, as he called Janet Reitman, had taken a box of his material and not returned it. And there were two thoughts about that. One was, why did you give original material away? If you're a scholar, you give their, their things called copies. Yeah, it's a Xerox machine. Yeah, scanners, things like that. Yeah. And two, you can't write your book because you're missing a box. My collection on Scientology is 60 bankers boxes basic plus 24 bankers boxes around. So 84 bankers boxes. That doesn't include the several yards of books. So you're gonna you're missing one box, you know, and you can't write it. You don't have enough material. His argument is if you've not seen the Scientology archive, you can't write about Scientology. So I wrote to him, I said, ah, that's like saying if you don't have the Kim family's diaries, you can't write about North Korea. He didn't respond. Yeah, or you can't write about the Catholic Church if you can't go into the Vatican archives and good luck getting in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, like come on. It's so these it, guys. It, you I know, mean, and, and why hasn't Scientology made those archives available if they will disprove as yet? My book's been out there since 1990, as yet. Nothing in it has been disproven. That's right. When Stacey Young read it, she did the so-called dead agent pack dismissing Ben Corridan's book. And she said when she read my book, she couldn't find anything. You know, again, she'd right. been in the archives. And again, I pointed out to Melton that I'd interviewed Jerry Armstrong, who's in the archives, Vaughan, who was the next head of the archives, Stacey, Shiona Foxness, Laurel Sullivan. I, you know, had some commerce with all of these people and quite a lot with with several. So I'd also, and I hate to admit this, had a friend who had full access to the archives during the researching of Blue Sky, which is why we got the 1938 Skipper letter, which everybody who's been involved in Scientology should read. My only goal is to smash my name into history so hard that if all of the books are destroyed, I'll be remembered. I can make Napoleon look like a punk. I don't believe in immortality except for the barred note, carved granite, printed word. Elrond Hubbard, 1938, after writing Excalibur. I was going to ask you, since we're sitting here gabbing about this, and you brought up archives, and you brought up personal connections to archives, I have to ask you this, because this has been a, a sort of back-in-my-mind interest from the beginning. I may have to charge money for this. Yeah, you might, but here we go. <laughs> I only know... I've only talked to two people in my entire life out coming out of the church who claimed to have actually held or seen or been around in the vicinity of Excalibur. The church claimed to have published one chapter of that book in one of the Ron Mags, but otherwise has never said anything about Excalibur one way or the other. Jerry Armstrong is one of those people, and he and I don't really talk at this point, and so I don't know what he did or didn't see about it. He saw and the four, other... four versions of Excalibur. Yeah, and the other person I'll, re I'll leave nameless, uh, but she also didn't really have any anything substantive to say about it. I'm curious, 
what have you heard about it since it's just this almost mythical lore status you know book that nobody's ever really seen except arthur j burks who wrote about it in the 60s and that's all we've really got and so i'm curious Oh, sorry, Forrest Ackerman, not uh, yeah. not Arthur J. Forrest Ackerman, yeah. yeah. Um, so, what what did did you learn anything new about this uh, in your connections? Uh, yeah, there are lots of little bits. Martin Samuels, who was the most successful Scientologist in all history in terms of making money, uh, the Delphi schools, various missions. Um, he said that when he read it, uh, wait, let's give them the myth. In February nineteen thirty eight, he. Hubbard writes this manuscript, Excalibur, which makes uh, one person freak out and commit suicide. So uh, Hubbard claims. Well, yeah, you know, I mean... I mean, it's it, not like we have proof of that. Well, it, not only don't we have proof of it, it's, it's absolute nonsense. Um, right. uh, Sorry, just had to throw that in there because because I, I needed to fact check that statement right yeah, immediately. Too, yeah, <laughs> yeah well, absolutely, absolutely. But please well, go on. Uh, thank you for please. doing that. Um, it is true that, that you know, uh, British irony can sometimes <laughs> make it sound as if, um, but, um, yes, you know, I apologize. No, no need to apologize. I'm, I'm glad that you, that you took it up. People do need to know that, that this is just a made up story, that Hubbard wrote this manuscript, which was so scary that he claimed that someone, they'd have to commit suicide as a consequence. I mean, uh, Battlefield Earth made me feel that way, I must say. <laughs> and it, you know, he talks about degraded novels in Keeping Scientology yes. Work and then writes about the uh, ring of boys with their all joined yes. together and mutated with their bums facing outward. You know, I mean, how degraded can you get? It made William Burroughs, a famous Scientologist, look positively tame by comparison, I thought. But That's right. The idea is that he wrote this book and it... it it revealed some, uh, he said that during a, a, a dental operation on nitrous oxide, and this is a very interesting point that's easily missed. If you look back to the nitrous oxide cults of the 19th century, William James, the great William James in the varieties of religious experience devotes a chapter to this in about 1901 when he gave, gave the lectures that it's based on, that there were people tripping out of their heads on nitrous oxide, laughing gas, still used occasionally in dental operations. Um, and, you know, it gives you a, apparently not actually, well, I have actually, when I was eight, I had a tooth extracted on it and I hated it. So I've not been tempted to, to use it again. It's, uh, I don't think it's even an illegal drug. I think it's one of the ones that got missed out. Um, it's still used as a propellant in aerosols. And so you get kids who, you get squirty cream and they die because the cream fills their lungs because they're trying to get the hit off the nitrous oxide. So don't try that at home. Definitely not. But Hubbard got high enough that he believed he was dead for some minutes. And during that time, a smorgasbord, a Swedish buffet of knowledge, was given to him that he wasn't meant to see. And somebody said, oh, no, he's not meant to be here. Send him back. Now, right. this is what's called tripping. And <laughs> You think? <laughs> <laughs> a reliable source of scientific information so he writes this book and the thing that that he finds is that the basic purpose of human beings is to survive and you're going wow you're telling me that that which is exists needs to exist to exist or it's not existing 
that's a real revelation. I think you'll find Darwin put it rather better when he stole Spencer's phrase, the survival of the fittest, which is to say those that are fittest to survive, not, not the strongest, not the cleverest, but the ones that are best fitted to this moment. The Nazis got that one a bit wrong too. It, it takes a bit of interpreting, you know. I wonder that Hubbard didn't necessarily mean something along those lines when he was, you know, sort of like some phrases and expressions can be dog whistles to racists or, you know, uh, misogynists or whatever. I wonder if Hubbard's had a little, I'm just, I'm just conjecturing here. I'm not asserting anything, but I'm just wondering whether Hubbard was sort of even maybe dog whistling to himself a little bit because the survive thing, because when you read about what Forrest Ackerman said about what's in Excalibur, it's weird. It's about power dynamics and it's about controlling people and it's weird. And he said it's weird reading it. So I'm sorry. Anyway, please go on, but I just wanted to interject. Kind of squirrely or squirmy is the word he uses. And yes, um, of course, later in 1949, Tony Ortega, every now and then Tony will publish something, which is a revelation to the public. And I'm going, oh, sorry. Uh, it's, you know, I've had that letter since 1985. I don't think about it because I've got just such an enormous collection of material. Um, but thankfully, Tony is there to share these things. As I say, the Skipper letter, everybody should read the 1938 letter. 1949, he writes a letter to Forry, and Forry lets us have all of his letters. Uh, bless him. It was me who sent the crew to film him as well. Uh, you know, I've been, in, I've, I've done wonderful things in my life, and not been paid for them. Um, but I will be sending a bill in at some point. Um, but in a 1949 letter published on the Underground Bunker, uh, where you can also find the interview with Forry Ackerman, which came from the Secret Life of Oren Hubbard, which I worked on in '96, my last contribution to um, Scientology documentary making, I think, um, that he says that he's found a way of raping women and they won't even know it happened. Um, this, he doesn't say, I found a way of helping people <laughs> at any point. He says, I found a way of making more money <laughs> than anything I've ever thought of. And that's what he's about. But I'm going to, we're going to go down the rabbit hole now. I'm going to say something that is, is not said enough and maybe hasn't been said. Elron Hubbard Jr., right, born in 1934, the son of the first marriage um, to Margaret Louise Grubb, Polly, the skipper to whom the skipper letter is addressed, in 1952 joined his father and um, there is much conjecture about this, this man, Nibs Hubbard, Elrond Hubbard Jr. And he is often dismissed. I have seen Tony Ortega dismiss him. I've seen Chris Owen dismiss him because he signed writs of perjury. He admitted to perjury. Now, what I would suggest is that if somebody threatened your life and offered you a quarter of a million dollars to sign a document, you might be tempted. Um, talking to his son, um, he said that his father always had a gun behind his back when he opened the door. Nobody was harassed more than the Nibs. Paulette Cooper, nobody was harassed more than Nibs. And for seven years, from 1952 to 59, at which point, he, you know, he was the immediate deputy to L. Ron Hubbard. Seven years during the development stage. So 
to dismiss what he said, you have to be very careful with what he said. And there are two lines of what he, you know, two ways, oh, two aspects of, of his testimony. One is what he experienced himself. And in my, as a historian, who's, you know, really done a lot of work on this, there are a lot of stories he told that I cannot confirm. I decided that I would not print anything that he said without a confirming source because he'd signed the writ of perjury. Um, but I was able to find that much of what he said, like, for example, the fight that broke out when uh, they came to arrest L. Ron Hubbard during the Philadelphia doctorate course, that other people testified to that. Um, so there's this one strand, which is his experience, when he says that he flew cocaine for the mafia, for his father, maybe not impossible but there's another strand which is what his father told him and he believed and part of what he's that there is a book it is called the telling of me by me it's the autobiography of Aaron hubbard jr and it has never been published and uh, i was the fourth person to read it on the grounds that i would not share the manuscript with anybody and i never have I have urged the holder of this manuscript to publish it um, because I think it utterly vindicates Aaron Hubbard Jr. And you find out the real L. Ron Hubbard, and it's the only place because this is the only person who knew him that closely, apart from Mary Sue, who maybe even she wasn't that close because of some of his sexual antics during the 50s. I think maybe she was shut out. So, his first experience with his father was the, uh, is now called Scientology History of Man. It was originally called What to Audit. And what happened was that he came into the room and his father gave him a handful of amphetamine pills, which were perfectly legal at the time, and sat him down, shoved him, bunged him up with speed, and said, uh, okay, what do you remember? Now in a two week period, Mary Sue Whip, Mary Sue Hubbard, uh, good name, um, Aaron Hubbard Jr. and Aaron Hubbard took amphetamines in large quantities and produced a book which says that we evolved from clams. This is a cold-blooded and factual account of the last 60 trillion years. How you can record 60 trillion years of history in two weeks, I do not know. You know, the, just researching Scientology over its years took me seven years, you know. But well, maybe, yeah, but I, John, maybe I should but, have taken some speed. But, and, you know. but John, they had an e-meter. Well... Yeah, I mean, but, come on. They had an e-meter, man. That's all. That was the that was the thing that propelled the so whole track memory syndrome, I guess you could say, right? Well, and I'm but, only I'm 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 just joking here, but I'm just you but, know. But you would have to, the amphetamines would have to have sped you up quite a bit because sixty trillion years. If and if you're then having to check everything on the e-meter, you know, I don't think you could do it. Right. And it's got the Piltdown Man in it, which is a forgery and all sorts of nonsense. But he goes from there to running the congresses where um, it was always $500 a ticket. The Philadelphia Doctorate course, 38 people attended it. That was the whole following. By December 1952, he'd gone from 150,000 people reading Dianetics in 1950 to total collapse using his incredible business skills. And he was just picking up people for these little congresses twice a year and he'd go on stage for 40 minutes, shoot a bullet and say R245 or what have you through the stage and lays around the rest of the time. 
writing and writing and writing because you know as you i and yuval believe and it was yuval who suggested it he probably had temporal lobe epilepsy which you know the first criterion is hypographia you can't stop writing and he's in the guinness book of world records as the most prolific author of all time undoubtedly author services provided four or five copies of everything you know because there are oh this was the you know, he wrote uh, Introduction to Scientology Ethics 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 editions. The reality is actually that he only wrote one book. Do you know this? And yeah, the, yeah, no, I, I know. And there's and there's compilation that. books and there's this and that. And yeah. even if even if you filter all that out, you are still dealing with 5,000 lectures, thousands of bulletins, thousands of policy letters. I mean, hypergraphia is absolutely a, a correct label for this man. Yeah, he, he just yeah. couldn't stop pouring this thing out. But what yeah. Nibs what Nibs does open the door to is what did Ron Hubbard believe? One of the things in the James Lewis book is that there's there's nothing to show that Scientology is a magical practice. Well, I beg to differ. But Excuse me, there's nothing in Scientology magical. Did this guy ever look up what a postulate is? Or, or what's he example, talking about? What an operating thetan is, if not well, a yeah, all of it. I mean, but come on, man. What they're I mean, trying to say is it's not ritual magic in the sense of Alistair Crowley. But oh. there's a difference between what the creator intends and what the followers do. And, you know, I would absolutely have heard, have been doing for decades, Scientology is a magical ritual. Absolutely. People, I mean, auditing is absolutely that. Yeah. All of the people are the entities, the elementals within the ritual who are being directed to flow power to source. That's right. That's right. Now, um, I just want to point out to everybody, just in case they think we've gone radically off subject here, that we are talking about the brainwashing of Nibs. <laughs> and we're talking about the you man know? who created the brainwashing system of Scientology and what it's meant to be. And what That's it's right. meant to be, as in any brainwashing system, is a way of enslaving and controlling people. Exactly. And when it works, you don't notice it. You're, you, you know, Steve Hassan, I think when I first met him in about 1989, he'd already got this question. You say to somebody, is it, I'm not I'm not under mind control. And he'd say, how would you know if you were? Exactly. Exactly. So it's, it's sharp and pointed questions like that that we need a lot more of. <laughs> yeah. The connection that Nibs makes that's very frightening is he talks about Crowley. He says his father was totally devoted to Crowley. He always kept a copy of the Book of the Law with him. Of course, he refers inaccurately to um, magic in theory and practice in the Philadelphia Doctorate course lectures. He refers to the full card as having an alligator barking at the heels. Well, only the Crowley pack has an alligator. The rest have a dog. You know, he calls him my very good friend, Alistair Crowley, though, of course, Crowley called him a, a, an, idiot, an idiotic lout. You know, they, they didn't share the same affection, you might say, and they never actually met. Um, but those elements of Crowley-like magic are very significant. And that Nibs is saying, look, he was terrified of his father. He believed that his father really was the B666 and that he'd opened the door to hell. And that he could put anybody in there, you know, and he could screw anybody's head up. And you see the amount of suicides around Hubbard. You know, the, one of the things that Benjamin Zeller in his paper about brainwashing said is that when he studied Heaven's Gate, only 1% of them committed suicide. So I point out that that's 70 times the national suicide rate in the United States. 
Sometimes right. you have to check numbers. And well, it, you know, framing is everything when you're talking yeah. about this stuff. And and you can frame it that way. Only 1%. And then you go, uh, yeah, we're talking about, you know, thousands of people or, you know, whatever it is. But it's, you know, framing. So it's, yeah. it's its own propaganda technique. Hubbard said when you become too incredible, you become invisible. Mm -hmm. And that is a truth. That is a truth. That if you tell people, look, this guy was into Alistair Crowley. He was a sadist who produced, who performed sex magic. Um, people are going, oh, yeah, yeah you disillusioned ex-member. I've seen the blood ritual. Omar Garrison had his door kicked in and he flew. He was the official biographer of Hubbard, who had the great hoard of documents from the archive. And he flew to England only to see me. Right. You met Omar Garrison? Yeah, he flew over to see me. I did not know that. Yep. And he showed me the blood ritual, which had been mentioned in the Armstrong case. And he said, you can't copy it. You can read it. I'm going to tell them that I've shown it to you. And if they try and take the archive back again, I'm going to give it all to you. So I've seen the handwritten document where Hubbard devotes his life to the goddess Hathor. And wow. gives of his blood that he will serve the Empress, who is the Scarlet Woman, the whore of the Babylon. guardian spirit. Yeah. So I have I, that he refers to in his uh, that he refers to in the. Um, God, my mind always goes dead on these things. Um, affirmations. Yes, and Burks talks about it. You mentioned A.J. Burks and his autobiography monitors. If if Hubbard had a a guru, I've. I've Tony tells me I've twice written about this, but A.J. Burks was his guru. And um, he was a, a, ultimately a colonel in the Marines who published 800 pulp stories and believed in monitors, these little beings, the little ips, he calls them. And he said Hubbard could see them. And in his, or the redhead, he calls him the redhead in his biography. And he says that... Um, Hubbard was never frightened when he was flying an airplane because he could see his guardian angel, a red-haired woman in a green dress, on the wing. And that's the Empress. That's Flavia Julia. That's Hathor. That's Diana, Artemis, Dianetics. Exactly. I was going to make that connection. That's right. Yeah. Um, we could probably oh, we will. do a whole other podcast on this occult leanings and teachings and stuff of Hubbard, and we should. I have to get us back to the brainwashing. I know my audience right now is like, no, but I we really need to discuss that in... I was just about uh, to tell you the you know, Okay, okay, come on. But I, I just want to... Just, just one, of the, one of the connections that Nibs makes, yeah. which I think is extremely important, Yes, and that is to Hitler. The, the oh, God, really? Nibs says, and this is what his father told him, and what I'm saying is, Okay. Don't believe anything that Elrond Hubbard said. <laughs> but he convinced okay. his son that he was given the magic materials by the same man who had given them to Hitler. Now, God. while I am not aware of any evidence that Hitler was involved in magical practices beyond astrology, which he definitely believed in, we do know without any shadow of a doubt that the deputy leader of the Nazi party, Rudolf Hess, and the head and founder of the Schutzstaffen, the SS and the Gestapo, uh, Heinrich Himmler, were both members of the Tula group. 
which is a sister organization of Alistair Crowley's OTO. There is no doubt about that. It's historically completely researched. So the notion that there is this bizarre set of ideas that has gone in, that went into the Nazis that also went into Scientology is well worth researching. And I would that these academics would spend a little bit of time doing that because I'm not going to. I'm done with that stuff. I want to help people not get involved with authoritarian, totalitarian groups or interrelationships with authoritarian people. I want to defeat authoritarianism in our society. So, you know, those were my interests 30 years ago when I was reading. And there is no doubt, I mean, there's an excellent documentary by Michael Wood, the English historian, who I had the great privilege of spending Christmas with one, one year, actually, which is a, yet another batch of stories, but he's a brilliant historian. He did a program about Himmler and Hess and their involvement and shows you that they were into the magic. Nibs was saying his dad boasted that he too was informed by Hitler. Just one little point beyond that, just one little point beyond that. There is a book called Hitler Speaks written by a man called Hermann Rauschening, who was the president of the Danzig Senate. The Dan After World War I, a corridor was made from Poland to the Baltic Sea that cut through Germany. And the city of Gdansk or Danzig was in that corridor. So it was declared an independent city and it's the place that the Nazis first came to power. And Hermann Rauschening was the man. He used to go and have dinner with Hitler. He used to spend weekends with Hitler and he kept careful notes afterwards. And in 1937, he left Germany and came to England or left Danzig and came to England because he was terrified by what he'd heard. And he wrote a book published in 1938 called Hitler Speaks. And in it, he said that Hitler had told him that the reason he'd left was that Hitler had said he was going to exterminate the Jews. Just straight on, he was going to kill them all. So forget the Van Seed conference and all of that. Um, and nobody listened to rationing, by the way. Nobody did anything about it. But he said Hitler had told him that if you want an organisation to function properly, you should look to the Freemasons for levels of initiation. That's your bridge. Yeah. That's they exactly what the level. bridge is. Yeah. That's right. And, and that you should look to the Jesuits for the form of your organization. Now, this wouldn't have meant as much to me as it did if it hadn't been that three years before I read Hitler Speaks, and I read it in 96 in Cape Town, I was talking to one of the great and hidden researchers who, who you know, helped me with the book, the hidden Tibetan, no, he's a real human being. And he said to me, Scientology is based upon the Jesuits and the Freemasons. So three years later, I'm having one of Hitler's guys say, this is what Nazism is based on. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. I tell you, man, I'm gonna. That is fascinating. This is the kind of thing that really gets me reevaluating things at a basic level, or at least certain things that I've looked at or conclusions I've made. And I love getting new knowledge and new information and being able to incorporate it. Yeah. For let, example, let say that I don't, I don't actually believe in magic. You know. I, oh no, of course not. I think it's no, 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 ridiculous I... nonsense. But I think as a historian, to exclude what people believed. Oh no, that's vital to understand their actions. Exactly. You cannot, you cannot understand why somebody acts the way they do if you don't understand why they think the way they do. Yeah. Um, 
I, I wanted to comment briefly on this, and then I really do want to get back to the brainwashing stuff, although I really do think this is all part and parcel of the same conversation. But let me ask you. Magic, magic is brainwashing. <laughs> yeah. Let me, let me throw this out there. I have, because um, I've never talked to you directly about it, I don't think, and that is my, my sub, supposition about the um, usefulness and, and, uh, and maybe necessity of Mary Sue Hubbard. Because I hadn't factored in Nibs, and I was thinking that when Hubbard, you know, Hubbard was a con man, Hubbard was a pathological liar, and Hubbard was extremely poor most of the time. He he spent money as fast as he got it. Of course, this is all according to Russell he, Miller's he, biography, he spent, right? Yeah, well, Russell's book is based on mine, and I was his researcher. I'm going right, to right. So that we interviewed many people, and that the same phrase kept popping up: "He spent money like water." Right. And so what changes in 1952, 53, that suddenly he's not doing that all of a sudden, right? Because he changed. Something changed. He started forming an organization and building it, not tearing it apart like he had with Dianetics. 1950 and 1951 is a character study of how to destroy a grassroots movement that is doing nothing but supporting every single thing you say and, and think, right? Hubbard had the he was the the world was his oyster, right? He he had it all. And he had people like hanging on his every word all through 1950 and 1951. And then he tanks the entire thing, bankrupts it because he just can't stop spending money like water. And I've often wondered what changed that Phoenix was able to happen and that that and Washington DC was able to happen and eventually he grill he he builds up this international organization and saint hell happens and then it becomes truly you know out of control and my thinking was always that mary sue who he said in many lectures was his organizational backbone she was the one who could come along and whip up the auditors get everybody into production get things going get organization going he bragged about how mary sue would do this over and over again through his lectures and so it made me think she might have been the organizational, I don't want to say organizational genius, but certainly the the influencer who calmed him down enough with his rampant spending and out of control, you know, flagrant violations of the law and stuff. I, I sort of thought, only based on the information that we have, that perhaps she was a civilizing, calming influence on him in some fashion. I don't mean, I don't want to overstate that. But I, enough I'm to I'm enough going, to build an organization. To, yeah, I, I'm I'm going to rip your supposition apart. I'm sorry. Please do. So now Nibs comes in, and now I'm thinking, well, how much of an influence was he, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So go. Let me start with a, a statement about Mary Sue Hubbard. Yes. Um, during his campaigns, uh, early on, before he led the Communist Party, Mao Zedong made a faint attack upon the town where his second wife, his first wife, had died and his two young boys lived. And then he left. So he left his wife and his two young children to be taken by the nationalists. And his wife was asked, will you renounce communism? And she said, yes. She was asked, will you renounce Mao Zedong? And she said, no. And she was executed. Mary Sue Hubbard is pretty much the same. There's a story there are a few of them. On the ship, um, she would often have screaming rages with Hubbard. And he, during one of these, said, look, what, she said, you're a charlatan. This is absolute 
it's a scam. What are you doing? And he said, what do I have to do to persuade you? And she said, I've never been exterior. I have to go exterior. So poor Otto Rose, who was the equivalent of the senior case supervisor, had to, Hubbard said, right, find every exteriorization process I've ever written and run them on Mary Sue until she goes exterior. And in the end, after a few weeks, Mary Sue said, no more. So she did not believe in communism, Scientology, whatever. She believed in Ron. So that's the relationship. She, I've talked with you know, senior Hubbard aides. I have a very close friend who, who said he hated Hubbard. He couldn't be near him. All of the screaming, all of the bullying. You know, I mean, when I found out about that, it's like my notion is of the Buddha, of a calm person. When I found that out about Hubbard, I knew it was wrong. You know, a bully? You know, you don't need to be that. Mary Sue could go around and calm people down afterwards. That was her virtue. In terms of organisation, what happened was that by the end of 1950, Hermitage House, Art Sepos, the publisher, had turned around to Hubbard and said, I'm not printing any more of this book because it's a scam. So that was the first collapse. The second was John Campbell Jr. running Astounding, the very influential man who really did have the qualification in physics, unlike Hubbard. Um, he said, it's nonsense. I, I, I had a remission of my asthma and now it's back again. Uh, they, of course, were audited using deep hypnosis as well. The technique was changed during the writing of Dianetics and there were no pre-clears on, on whom the reverie, according to Don Rogers, who was there and who I interviewed, uh, the letters he sent, I've given to Tony and put up. Um, they're very, and Joe Winter, who wrote about it, they were the only people who were there. So organize, five organizations were made, they were run by other people, he spent the money. Then he runs, he steals Alexis and runs off to Cuba with Richard DeMille. And Sarah has a psychiatrist pronounce him mad. And that's when his war on psychiatry begins. Two of the foundations, I believe, were run by psychologists. You know, so it was nice. Oh, no, that is new information to me. Okay. That's fascinating. Yeah. So there, there was... Because no I, thought, I thought he was bagging on psychiatry earlier than that. That's no. interesting. I guess I'd have to dig that up. Interesting. He's, okay. All right. He, I'll, 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 yeah. He writes abnormal Dianetics to send it to the... Yes. Yeah, he's right. trying to be accepted. That's um, right. That's right. And a variety of people, Carl Rogers and Fritz Perls, both wrote positive comments about Hubbard, not having studied any of his work. And but Perls actually seems to be taking bits of Scientology, which in, in turn Hubbard had taken from elsewhere. Then you get um, Don Purcell coming into the picture, who is a super wealthy oil man in Wichita. This is in Wichita, Kansas. And he builds an organization and it continues for several years, but because of the bankruptcy of the Elizabeth Foundation, um, he says, look, I'll take on the responsibility, Ron. And mm -hmm. so Hubbard sells him the word Dianetics, the existing foundations, the book DMSMH, for a dollar. And he goes in, Purcell goes into court, and for $800, if I remember rightly, the judge gives him, says, okay, you've bought out of the bankruptcy. So Hubbard no longer owns Dianetics, and he now, in February 52, has to invent something. Theta, so, the tone scale, and all that leads to Scientology. Yeah, all of which comes from Alistair Crowley or, or from other existing sources. The, the tone scale's been around for a while. Um, it, 
you know, and the, the, the idea of the four humours. I mean, he does mention this in Dianetics, but it is just the four humours of garlands and medieval medicine, really. It's, it's not a new idea. Um, but he's got to package it a new way because he's got nothing to sell. From then until probably 1964, he really doesn't make any money. He travels around the English-speaking world and he manages to get these $500, you know, so as I say, the Philadelphia Doctor, of course, there are 38 people. That's it. That's all he can get. And that's because Helen O'Brien organised it with John Neugebauer. And she writes, for me, the most poignant book about Scientology, uh, Dianetics in Limbo, which is just heartbreaking, the experience she had with Hubbard and what he, you know, her husband ended up killing himself because of the promises that Hubbard had failed to fulfill, uh, one of many over the years. But there never is that much of an organization. There never is that much money. When he buys St. Hill in 1959, he's stretched everything to the limit to do it. I think it cost 18,000 pounds or something because the Maharaja of Jaipur was tired of it. Um, I'm tired of it. It's a horrible building. It's an awful place. It's just gray and dull and boring. And the castle, oh, come on. You know. <laughs> And, and there's squirrels. Well, this is very life. interesting because I had a different impression of life through the 50s. I thought the 50s were a t were an affluent period, so I was wrong no, about he, that. He manages to buy a Jaguar car. One. He manages to tour Europe for months in 1952 yeah, on holiday, with Mary Sue. Rajneesh had 90 Rolls Royces, not one Jaguar. You know, yeah, I get it. I get it. I know he's not rich. I just thought that he was people for money, but he's a scam artist. He's not the big money starts in the 60s. Uh, okay. Because of the okay. Anderson inquiry. The thing that promoted Aaron Hubbard was not a management system. It was the media all around the world going, this thing's really scary. The amount of people I talked to over the years who joined because he said he's into black magic. <laughs> I know it's kind of scary, isn't it? You think, okay, we're going to warn you guys. We're going to set you up so that you don't fall for this. And you tell them best. And then they go, oh yeah, that's the, all the reasons I want to join. <laughs> You're just like, what are you nuts? Anyway. Yeah. Oh, sorry. So, Carry on. so I mean, my understanding is, is that um, the, the organization only with the Sea Org in the late sixties, does the money stop? to roll in and that is it's well that's that's i'm gonna push back a little bit there only because while at saint hill before the sea org even existed or was a as a you know glimmer in his eye the irs was investigating and they but they revoked tax exemption because of enormant hubbard yeah. was making bank by that point. And that was 67 that they yanked. That was before the Sea Org. But you're, that, to, that to me looked like the impetus for skipping town and going up and starting the Sea Org was partly because the government was like, yeah, no more tax exemption. We're coming after you. And England was banning people. I mean, it was getting serious. Yeah, and Hubbard the, went, okay, I'm out of here. But I thought he was rolling in it at that point. The, the, okay. The inurement, it runs, yes, it runs into millions. I'm not saying he was poverty stricken, but nothing like, uh, say, Mahesh. You know, Mahesh, his, he's left, uh, I think there's eight billion. They call him Maharishi, sorry. I, I am not going to call him great teacher. That's just wrong. It's like calling Rajneesh Bhagwan or Supreme God. 
you know, it just doesn't work for me. Or a cheerio teacher. Uh, his name I'm totally is- okay with that. That's fine. I yeah. get it. So Mahesh- I agree with you that I agree with you that Hubbard was definitely not rolling in massive bank yet and that definitely when the sea org came around and international trafficking started and all kinds of other nonsense that yeah. he got involved in that real real big money started happening so okay i'm tracking with what you're saying organ- organizationally you can look at each place and you'll find the individuals who collected the money um, um if you go to australia or south africa the two places where you know, you'll find that in the Johannesburg, and that's why, of course, he gets very upset and invents the Joburg because the Johannesburg security check, because the people are making him the money leave. Oh. You've got, I think it's Peter Hemery in Australia. Right. He called him out by name, didn't he? he, he oh, yeah. And, and they yeah. are to be R245 if you see yes. them. They are to be murdered yeah. if you see them. He was pissed. R245 is a 45 handgun. Yeah, it's a it's, it's a joke it, of a process it, 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 that's not a joke. It, he literally means he wants to, he wants these people killed. So wow, yeah, there's that digression. By the seventies, because of he did have some people around him who were really canny. Some of whom I'd rather not name because they're friends of mine and they don't want to be named anymore. But people like Alex Siberski, ah yes, not, not a friend of mine, who. I believe when he was declared suppressive, he was told he had to sell something like 100,000 copies of Dianetics. And he did it. You know, he, he, there were these people, they were salesmen, which is, you know, again, they're names I don't want to mention at this point because, I mean, I can think of one guy who went bankrupt three times. And during his third bankruptcy, he was boasting to me how you move money to your wife, how you max all your credit cards, how you, these are people who knew about how to make money in a, I tell you, Zabursky is a good example. The Battle of Britain, as it was called in 1974, summer of 1974, just six months before I joined, they took people, Zabursky took people and put them in a marquee and wouldn't let them leave without signing what were called postulate checks. Right. These were post-dated checks for a certain amount. And he collected a huge amount of money but he lost half of the membership in the UK. That's right. And Hubbard then canceled postulate checks, right? Yeah. How dare you? I never authorized this. This wasn't what we wanted you to do. No. And, you know? and what I found out through interviewing people was I interviewed a Diana Hubbard aide who said, well, it was actually Diana who told Berserksky, as he used to be called, to do this. So he was acting on orders. And then I found somebody else who'd heard Hubbard <laughs> telling Diana to do it. Okay, well, there you go. I mean, it's not the first time Hubbard threw everybody else under the bus for his mistake. I'm just pointing out that that happened, you know. (coughs) It's it is really something there is all there's so much of this to get into. But let me this section and use it elsewhere. Well, I almost could, but I'm not going to because this is so fucking fascinating. I'm going to keep all this up. And I really want people to see how you just, you know, through. You just swore on television. I did. I did. I get to do that on my channel. Wow. I don't think any 12-year-olds are. Mine's mine's only. I think think I don't think I'm I'm not living in fear that a bunch of 12-year-olds are going to come watch my channel. Um, 
Well, a bunch okay. of 12-year-olds can actually quote South Park at you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've got to worry about you. Know? <laughs> All right, let's 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 get back to brainwashing because I actually would. We have been, we've been talking for a while and this is really good stuff. So I'm obviously going to keep all of this, but I do want to get back to the main theme. And, yeah. yeah, me too. Um. Okay, I want to just take up one other thing that is commonly used. And again, I say commonly used because I literally found it on Wikipedia, find it around. I've read all of this stuff before, seen all of this in in, in different forms, in academic papers and, and in articles and media articles. You see that they just kind of reconstitute this idea. And that is in 1956, after reexamining the concept of brainwashing following the Korean War, the U.S. Army published a report, I have a copy of this thing, I've, I've gone through it, entitled Communist Interrogation, Indoctrination, and Exploitation of Prisoners of War, which called brainwashing a popular misconception, quote-unquote. Again, this is 1956, the U.S. Army busts this thing out, and they say, quote, exhaustive research of several government agencies failed to reveal even one conclusively documented case of brainwashing of an American prisoner of war in Korea, it says. Now, what I want to ask you is, how did they redefine the term brainwashing so no one was ever brainwashed? <laughs> how did they say this? Because <laughs> this is definitely not true. The central allegation made by American prisoners of war in radio broadcasts from uh, North Korea in uh, 1951 and 52 um, was that they were aware of a germ warfare program against North Korea. And uh, such allegations were made. It could be suggested that there was something other than brainwashing that had led these people to say it. But there are only two ways you can go with this. Either they had knowledge of this and were telling the truth, or they had been coerced in some way into inventing these stories. This is where things get kind of murky because there is evidence that flies in cluster bomb units carrying diseases were dropped by the US Air Force on North Korea. Now, if you wanted to cover that up, then you can go in several directions. How trustworthy are US government reports? Well, um, we were told, for example, when Osama bin Laden was uh, killed, um, he wasn't captured. Uh, it was a, a, actually an illegal operation in a foreign country. He wasn't tried. So one could say when Osama bin Laden was murdered, and I'm not saying he didn't deserve it, um, the media were told by US government sources backed up by the president that the enhanced interrogation techniques, the torture, was how they had found out his location. The truth is they'd found it out through cell phones. So how reliable a source and how exhaustive are the investigations without seeing what those investigations were? I mean, I would thoroughly recommend uh, Dominic Streetfield's book, Brainwash, because he, it's a great book. It, and he doesn't, he seems to be quite confused. He seems to be saying, well, brainwashing doesn't work. And then at the end of the book, he's got a chapter on interrogation, which does. Now, right, 
sorry, you can't separate the two things. Um, POWs, Edgar Schein and um, Margaret Singer, of course, studied the POWs coming back and their exhaustive investigation led them to believe very much that these people certainly were subjected to certain techniques. That there is, um, along, there were Turkish prisoners of war and it was said not one of them gave a broadcast, right? So why was that? Why were the Americans willing to do it and the Turks not? Well, there could be a reason. They didn't, the Koreans didn't have any Turkish speaking people. But if you spoke English, they'd got people who could talk to you. So mm, it, it's a difficult, it's a very difficult place. There's also, there's a brilliant documentary about one of the Americans who stayed there. And it was made, I think in the early 1990s. And it, you know, a few of the prisoners of war decided not to go home. And he'd lived there all of that time beyond and said, no, it's a great regime. I love it. But I didn't find him very convincing, I must say. <laughs> wow. But, so uh, totally untrustworthy source. And uh, yes, yeah. uh, another source would be, uh, if we wanted to go sideways, Sun Myung Moon, the founder of the Unification Church, the Moonies. He spent three years in a prison camp in North Korea. He then ran a program in 1954, I think, called Victory Over Communism, uh, which was a camp that used the techniques that he reckoned had been used on him, which are the Chinese techniques, uh, to convert people away from communism. He then, uh, with a man called Bohai Pak, as his second in command, set up the Unification Church. Bohai Pak, this is not conspiracy theory, was a colonel in the Korean Central Intelligence Agency. He's not the only KCIA officer to be a member of the top level of the Unification Church, which, of course, has gun factories all over the world, as any good religion these days does. You've got to protect yourself, you know, against these, these non-believers. So the interweaving and the deception that has gone on. Also, of course, at the same time that this is being issued, you can't do this, it's never been done. Programs are being run on thousands of people in Canada uh, under Ewan Cameron, who was the first president of the World Federation of Mental Health and was wiping people's memories through sensory deprivation and electroshock. Can't be done, can't be done. Um, the, what, 2,000 people, I think they say, were given the drug BZ, which is now classified as uh, chemical warfare. And it's said to be 100 times stronger than LSD. I'm not sure how you measure that. Um, <laughs> This is LSD is seven, and it, um, but it's like, and it's a four day trip, and it never leaves your system. Unlike LSD, which Aaron Hubbard said, you know, you can get rid of through sweating. Well, no, LSD can't stay in your system, it's water based. <laughs> sorry, exactly, exactly. Sorry. but this stuff wasn't. These are I have, chemical I have another, con I have another connection here I want to throw out. Yep. Also on this, in terms of reinforcing what you said about an unreliable source with the government, because these are also the exact same people, the United States government, the CIA specifically, in, 1950, in the early 1950s starts MKUltra, and we all know about that. Well, the very first program was started, I believe, in 1947 in U.S. Hmm. Navy intelligence, and it's called Bluebird. Okay. Um, 
And that, you know, that again, Hubbard in Science of Survival, published in 1951, talks about government agencies using pain drug hypnosis. As far as I know, that's the first time until 1975 that anyone is the only mention of the program, um, which led Lawrence Wallersheim and I both to, to think, is Scientology actually one of the programs of the intelligence agencies? Is it a mass control program? We both speculated about that. I don't think it, I don't think it is um, because they wouldn't have used somebody like Hubbard. I think it's because of his association with Robert Heinlein, who did have access to top secret clearance and probably knew about this program. And I am told, and I haven't seen this, according to Heinlein's diaries, not only did Hubbard have sex with Mrs. Heinlein, she had sex with Mr. Heinlein too. Um, so they were intimate. And he may have shared some pillow talk with, with Ron, you know, uh, which is why this 1951 book, Presages, you know, the release of information by more than two decades. So the first program is before communist China is established. It's not because of the Chinese. It's because of the Russians. Um, uh... Because of the purge, the show trials of the 1930s and the belief that the Russians I mean, Cardinal, Cardinal Minzenki comes into this, but that's a very complicated other story. They, they believe the Russians have got something. So the so, actual earlier beginning on this whole thing isn't Korea or China, it's Russia. Yeah. Which, it's of course, we, as, we, as we mentioned earlier, completely funding China's revolution from the beginning to the end. Yes. This was a time period which is different than now. We have to contextualize this a little bit because this is a um, post-World War II, like immediately post-World War II, Cold War situation where Russia is, well, in some ways similar, but much, much, much worse than how things are now. But um, Russia has just invaded most of Eastern Europe. Right. It's taken Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, uh, East Germany, um, it has influence in Yugoslavia and Albania. And of course, the Korean War starts because um, the US decides that it will give half of Korea to the Soviets. So a deal is struck. Two, two guys spend half an hour, two American military guys spend half an hour in a room with a map and decide on the 38th parallel. That's how right. they came to it. And so a deal is made, we'll have the South bit, you'll have the North bit. Poor Koreans who've been enslaved by the Japanese for 35 years don't get any of it. That's right. And so I, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that, you know, it's not necessarily all nefarious and horrible and awful intentions that were behind some of these programs or some of this work. These were people who were facing a new enemy, Russia, having just come out of World War II, I mean, you got to get the mindset. This was a very different time than the time we're living in right now as yes. far as threats and ideas and also technology. I mean, there's no internet. There's no none of that stuff. And it's hard for people to contextualize what life was like before the internet for the, for those of us who lived before it. We, we understand it. But people who, who don't, I mean, you really got to understand the life is very different without the internet, you know, and, um, and a lot of other things. And so here's this new looming world threat, as you just mentioned, they're literally invading countries. And America's looking at this and going, well, shit, we just bailed Europe out of this whole thing. We, we got our asses kicked. We had to drop some nukes on Japan to get them to, to knock it off. And now, 
we're facing a new threat, and it's called this Cold War, where we're not going to fight a hot war. Nobody wants that. We're too exhausted. The entire world is too exhausted to do that. So now we're going to fight this Cold War, and, yet, and, and we see these people who capture our soldiers, and they turn them against us. They, they turn them. They make them into little Russians. And we're like, what the, what, what? How does that happen? How are we going to do that? How do yeah. they do that? And they want to figure that out. And then things just kind of get out of control. <laughs> so now yeah. I kind of see it. I don't know. What do you think? There, there is something darker behind it, which is you look back into the 1920s and 30s in the US, you have the anti-socialist, anti-communist campaign you have people like Huey Long, uh, the dictator of Louisiana, as he's, he's called mm-hmm. in his own time. You have Charles Coughlin, the Church of the Little Flowers, who has the largest radio audience ever achieved in the world, so I read. It was said that you could walk through New York City on a Sunday from one end to the other on a summer's day without missing a single word of Coughlin's sermon because if the windows were open, there were that many people. When you read Coughlin, you'll find that Elron Hubbard's uh, oratory is based very much on Coughlin. Um, he's a Catholic priest who ultimately is banned by the Pope from speaking because he's so pro-Hitler. This is a time when you have uh, Madison Square Gardens completely filled with the Nazi rally. You can see this it. is post World War Two. No, this is in the late 1930s. God, oh, sorry, sorry. Okay, what's yes, happening yes, yes. Is, You already have a a terrible fear of what is happening. And then you have the reality of what's happening. The war didn't get very cold. Um, In 1945, one and a half million Russian troops move into Manchuria. And there are historians who would argue that that's why Japan surrendered, because they realized they didn't have a chance against that. Um, You've got the expansion of Russia into Europe. And you have one of the worst people in all of history, um, Yusuf Jugashvili, Stalin, the man of steel. We, we only know him by his nickname. Um, he's moved a whole population of his home country out to get his revenge on them, the Ossetians. They're all moved out. He has killed perhaps 11 million people directly. And he has overseen a country where perhaps 27 million people have died. And he is on the rampage. Um, I mean, for for a bit of light relief, the the film The Death of Stalin by Amanda Iannucci is is a comic masterpiece. But it is not inaccurate in describing the day that Stalin died and the terror inflicted by him. So you have Michael Palin of Monty Python, another fame, playing uh, Molotov who is told that his wife is on the hit list to be executed. And he's basically saying, well, if Comrade Stalin said, then then it must be right. It must be, you know, she should be killed. And this kind of bizarre situation that's happening in Russia and the fear of of the domino theory. If, If one country goes, then the others will go. So it's not a cold war in Korea. You've got the Chinese army and the US Army and the British Army, the Australians, various other people, all in a terrible war. You've got the Inchon campaign under MacArthur. MacArthur is arguing that nuclear arms should be used against China. 
And uh, in the end, uh, President Truman basically pulls him out because he can't stop him. And he still keeps saying publicly, let's nuke them, you know. So there's a very hot war going on. And the casualties are massive. You know, there are hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people die in this war, which is being kept quiet by the media. So the notion that the other side, Russia and China, has a psychological weapon that you don't have. It's like when they got into the, you know, you're trying to use dolphins to plant torpedo, you know, mines on ships and things because they thought the Russians doing it. Like the spoon benders, you know, where they actually really did have psychics seeking to guide missiles in the first Iraq campaign, which, which is, oh, come on, guys, uh, which also came out of Scientology, but that's another story. Um, they thought the Russians were doing it. Their psychics could do it. So you get this kind of craziness that, that is actually based in, in sense. If the Russians do have something, we need to stop them because, I mean, it, as late as 1961, the concept of leaderless resistance, which is now being used by Al-Qaeda and ISIS, don't, don't call us, just go and kill some people. That was developed by a US Army colonel in 1961, absolutely convinced that the communists were just about to take over America. So everybody needed to be ready to fight back, but not talk to each other about it so they'd never be able to catch you. Go and blow up some commies. So you've got this fervor, which is actually, I agree with you, based upon a very real threat. What was not understood in the Kennedy period is that the USSR had nothing like the arms. So it was being said they had 500 missiles when they had four, you know. Uh, it was only in 2000 that it came out that there were Russian nuclear submarines, submarines with nuclear torpedoes in Cuban waters at the time of the crisis. And that if the commanders of the American ships had not let them go, they would have fired those torpedoes into US cruisers and sunk them, and there would have been World War III. You know? So yeah, pretty tense things going on here. And, you know, and the darn Ruskies developed their own atomic weapons, their own hydrogen bomb. And, um, and this is also, and then there's 1950s, and there's McCarthyism, and social unrest, and civil rights uprest in the late, you know, all through, especially late 50s, and then into the 60s. And I mean, this, you know, I, I'm not a historian, so I only have you know, a lay person's understanding of, of the historical events and, and the research I've done to nail down specific events. But, you, you know, your, your knowledge here is, is encyclopedic compared to mine, which is why I love talking to you about this stuff. Well, thank you. And, uh, well, no, I mean, for real. I mean, you, you remember the dates and the names way better than I could have. You, you have a knowledge of this stuff the way I used to have a knowledge of where L. Ron Hubbard's quotes were. Yeah, I could give you name, title, page number, paragraph number of certain quotes and stuff. Hammer out of existence, incorrect technology. That's well, yeah, and and I took all that shit seriously, you know. But it's I been harder. Yeah. It's been harder over the years to keep that steel trap memory with the amount of knowledge I keep shoving into this box here. It, it surprised me when I came back after seventeen years away from this subject, completely away from it, that so much of it was still in there. I know it's amazing. I but I don't think there's any limit to, to the memory. I don't think it's like a bucket that can overflow. I, I think we, <laughs> you know, we, you know, some of us are frankly lucky and, and others aren't. And there are also, there are a lot of things that you can do to your memory that will make it worse. And yes, I don't 
I don't do those. Things. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I, I I might do those things sometimes. I think most people um, do. Yeah, but, I do. It's it, it it's its own thing. Okay, let me ask you this. Um, we've talked quite a bit about this actually, and we might have already answered this question or or covered this topic well enough. Just in terms of moving toward wrapping this up, in terms of the you know talking about brainwashing, we have definitely debunked the debunking as to why it's not a thing, doesn't work, didn't work, won't work. We know now, covering all this history and territory, that that's total horseshit, and in fact, probably just PR from the government to cover up the fact that they've got all kinds of things that they can use to manipulate people. You throw Cambridge Analytica in the digital world on top of this, and it becomes so terrifying, I don't even want to, actually, I can't really even start thinking about it without getting very overwhelmed. So I don't really want to go there right now. So I guess what I'd like to do is maybe address if there's anything more to say about the apologists. Um, you, you know, we, you and I are covering a lot of territory here. Are these people who, you know, we, we've covered intentions in terms of, you know, some of these academics believe in religious freedom. They should believe in religious freedom. I believe in religious freedom. I just don't believe in religious freedom to abuse people. And this is where my 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 problem with the academics comes in is they are they are helping these groups to further abuse and harm people, and in many cases even kill people. And this is this is where my 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 teeth start gnashing, you know, about about my frustrations about these people. As well-intentioned as they might be, they're still doing it wrong. Yes. Is there anything further to say about that from your end? Yeah. One of the great transitions is this word cult that's that's upset people so much. Uh, It had no pejorative meaning up until 1977 in the Oxford English Dictionary. And let me explain that. The Oxford Dictionary, since its inception in the 19th century... I believe you have to have 400 uses before they will accept a new meaning for a word. So um, up until um, 1977, and I have the book right beside me, there is no pejorative meaning. The word cult comes from, it's the same as cultivate or culture. It means to grow. It means to worship or devotion. And... um, In the 1977 edition, it reads, devotion to a particular person or thing, now especially as paid by a body of professed adherence. So people who profess belief. That's it. Nothing negative at all. That meaning, they actually date it back to 1711. Then it changes its meaning. It starts to become pejorative or negative in its meaning. And there are that starts in America. Um, there are even dictionary entries before the Oxford. The Oxford saying there haven't been 400 uses, and they're scouring newspapers and books all the time to find uses. So I think the American Heritage is the first dictionary that, that starts saying, and it's a group you don't like. So it's a very accurate term, a group that pays devotion to a particular person or thing and an adherent to a group, a cult member, the cult of personality, what have you. The academics have given us, sociologists particularly, have given us this expression. In fact, I think Gordon Melton, who's a historian of religion, in fact, is credited with the term new religious movement. Now, when I had 
poor Eileen Barker sat in front of me in, in July in Manchester, I pointed out that I don't have any problem with new religious movements. I think it's an incredibly imprecise term, new according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, Encyclopedia Britannica um, means since the 18th century millenarian movements, and according to Eileen Barker, means since the 1950s. According to Benjamin Zeller, he says new is a slippery concept. It isn't a slippery concept, you know, it means new. So they're not new. Who cares whether they're new or not? Let's throw that word away. Uh, religious, well, they classify groups like Earhart Seminar Training, the Forum, Banmark Trust, Lifespring, uh, multi-level marketing schemes. They're classified as new religious movements, so they have no religious thing. A movement means more than one person. So you're left with a very imprecise term. But I said, I'm happy with that. I, I would rather that it was called an alternative belief system because that's accurate and it doesn't need to be religious and what have you, but okay, they're not gonna follow me. Um, that's okay. But let's separate out. Most new religious movements are relatively harmless. There's no danger in them. Who cares that people want to believe that, you know, we all derive from pumpkins and, and one day we'll, we'll glow in the dark and the earth is only a little bit curved and egg-shaped. I, I don't care. It's what people do that bothers me. What about we add a word to the beginning of it? Authoritarian new religious movements. And the problem is that by slipping into language, and Benjamin Zeller in his, you know, he, he finished off his paper. I've got it up in front of me. He, he finished off his paper by saying it's a matter of language. Um, he says, scholars of new religious movements have shown that the mythology of cultic mind control is more rhetoric than reality. It's easy to understand why critics of the president dismiss him as a cult leader and his political followers as brainwashed, but it says a lot more about the power of language than it does the president himself. Now, my response to that is, of course, with this statement, Zeller dismisses the work of scholars, including, but far from limited to, Robert J. Lifton, Edgar Schein, Yanya Lelich, Philip Zimbardo, Alan Shefflin, Stephen Kent, Robert Cialdini, Anthony Prakarnas, Margaret Singer, Louis Jolyon West, Benjamin Zablocki, Rod and Linda Dubra Marshall, Michael Langoni, Daniel Shaw, and Alexandra Stain. But his last sentence can be refashioned to describe his own paper. It says a lot more about the power of language than it does about the book he has yet to read or the concepts he so eagerly and erroneously dismisses. Language proves that there's such a thing as brainwashing because by using a term, I mean, um, I've got him right here and everybody should read him, uh, Frank Luntz, um, Words That Work, the basic propaganda module. This guy now works for Trump. He's worked for the Republican Party for a long time, but Senator John Kerry, who is not a fan of the Republicans, says Frank Luntz understands the power of words to move public opinion and communicate big ideas. Any, dem any Democrat who writes off his analysis and decades of experience just because he works for the other side is making a big mistake. His lessons don't have a party label. The only question is, where's our Frank Luntz? Now, if Hillary Clinton had read this book, she would have become president because the horrible reality is that we 
react to words below the level of thinking. It's called snarl words and purr words. So if I say appeasement, that's a snarl word, but it only means negotiation, right? If I say fascist, that's a snarl word. It means somebody who doesn't believe in democracy. If I say democracy, that's a purr word. And some, you know, some people have purr words and snarl words like libtard, for example, which, which belong to their group and they become thought terminating cliches, as Robert J. Lifton says, which is an aspect, oh yes, of brainwashing. That we cannot think, and George Orwell points this out in the appendix 1984, which is a rubbish book, I think. It's, it's a, he didn't rewrite it. I love George Orwell. His other books are beautifully written. That book he didn't have time to redraft because he died. But the appendix, so the book itself, I think is very badly written. The ideas are interesting. The appendix about language is mind boggling because he's saying, if you don't have the words, you can't think it. Now that's where we've gone. And that's information control in the extreme where you can no longer think the thing. So if I say brainwash, instead of saying undue influence, which is the legal term for the last 500 years for brainwashing, <laughs> it's absolutely accepted that you can coerce somebody into changing their mind. In this country, since 2015, we've had a law called coercive control, and there have been many prosecutions. It's only in intimate relationships, but where it's accepted that one person can completely psychologically dominate another. There's no force, there's no threat of force even, but they can dominate the person. The work of Evan Stark in the US has really pointed that up, saying, you know, it's, it's not about battered wives or indeed battered husbands. It's about coercive control. It's about a situation where you don't make the decisions. That's the situation in any tyranny. And so, of course, it exists. It exists in universities where professors are forced to write so many papers and articles every year, whether they have any meaning or not. Um, a terribly unfortunate effect of modern education where um, Yuval Law, who we've mentioned a couple of times, my dear friend, um, he said um, the sea squirt. The sea squirt is an animal that, that in the larval form floats around in the sea and then it attaches to a rock and goes into the adult stage. And the first thing it does is eat its own brain. And you will have said... <laughs> That's right. I heard about this one. PhDs are like the lava and then they find a university and attach. And <laughs> that is a great analogy. He's full of them, I tell you. He's, he's, that he's is a, a great analogy. According to every academic and professional uh, in academia that I've talked to uh, or interacted with, and I have friends, I that's used to exactly be so what it like. You know, when I first came to this yeah. business in my 20s, there were these professors, and I find myself talking with them about their subjects. You know, so I remember talking to a professor of theology and saying, um, why is it that, Priests are called father, pastor, when Jesus in Matthew 23 says, call no man on earth your father. And he looked at me and he said, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> now he that is awesome. I love stuff like that. I, that's been my experience so many times that, that it, you know, when you, you, you talk about, you know, the determinism and functionalism and, uh, postmodernism, you know. Oh my God! Oh. Everybody's 
opinion is worth everybody else's. My thoughts about gravity are just as good as Einstein's. Um, obviously, the, this, this, these mad things like the, uh, the you know, things like Antifa, where it's like, yeah, we we hate fascists so much that we're going to go and beat them up. You know? Right. I, my point. I talk about this all the time, and people push back on this. Like, I, talk about brainwashing, Jesus. Exactly. Ah, Antifa just really riles me up. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, the, sorry. The, the, <laughs> the word cult is in the word culture. And you know, my, I, I wrote a book called Opening Minds, uh, which is meant to be to show how this happens throughout society, that, that it isn't like there are these religious cults and these commercial cults. We think in a certain way and we become cultic in our behavior. Our governments are most certainly cultic. They, they are desperate. You know, you've got Bolsonaro in Brazil and Trump in the US telling us that global warming isn't happening. And then you've got the thermometer that's telling us that it is. Hmm. Or as Groucho said, you know, who would you rather believe, me or your own eyes? Um, the, you know, <laughs> I, I right. looked into the, the research on climate change and global warming, and it's happening. The only argument has ever been, why is it happening and can we slow it down? Yeah, it's exactly. Not, the argument became, but, are we making it happen, in, which is irrelevant. Can I, we I know. I, but, but, but I want to be careful. I want to be cautious here. And I need, to, I need to push back a little bit on something here. Maybe not push back, but just maybe clarify a little bit. Because mm, I resist. And, I, and I, think it can, I think because it's an invitation to sloppy thinking. And I'm not saying you're intending to do this. I just, I'm saying that you know, people get easily confused. And, they, and they're so used to in thought-stopping cliches and propaganda and receiving it from all ends all day long, especially with social media, that I try to avoid going into a place where we're going to start saying or thinking everything is a cult. Well, Do you know what I mean? Let's just say there's a spectrum of everything and you are somewhere on the spectrum. With brainwashing, at the far spectrum is terror, force, violence. And at yep. the mild end... There's conversation with influence. You know, it, I, I remember many years ago, a conversation with somebody who was telling me that all influence is bad, that people are just trying to persuade other people their own perception. I'm going education. I know that much of education is just trying to make people obedient and, you know, fill their heads with facts, which is useless, frankly, that, that we, need, we need the skill of how to act, how knowing what to do, not knowing that, you know, the Battle of Waterloo was in 1815 or that the liberation, the manumission of slavery was in 1863. I'm the kind of guy that remembers those kind of things, but I'm also the kind of guy that thinks they're irrelevant. What's relevant is, can I see what's in front of me? You know, it's like the, um, or that, the case Louise Ogborn, who um, there are two movies about now, who was basically sexually abused while an assistant at a McDonald's. And um, Compliance, one of the movies is called, and it's got Dream Weaver in it, I think she's called. And she's basically, a guy phones up and says, I'm a cop, and gets the manageress to get this poor young woman to take her clothes off in the back of the store. What is fascinating to me is that one, one guy was actually convicted of rape. The guy that did it over the phone, nobody could get. And he'd done it 80 times before successfully, I think it's that many. 
what fascinated me about it was that it was only the janitor, the guy who'd not graduated from high school, who walked into the room and said, this is wrong. So he'd not been brainwashed, if you like. He'd not been educated into believing it. He could see it as it was. I have a, had a dear friend many years ago said the wisest guy he'd ever met was an illiterate shepherd. <laughs> that he'd never been poisoned by anybody else's thinking and he'd thought his way through to a, a way of life, you know, that was happy and peaceful and, you know, didn't get in the way of anything. Um, so I, I think stuffing people full of facts and information, I just have, haven't had that kind of head. Um, it's my misfortune in life to live with it. But yeah, everything's a spectrum that, you know, that where are we on that spectrum? And so cult and culture, foot binding in China is, was part of their culture for 1500 years. Um, if we are rational, if we are open-minded, which means willing to listen to other arguments, I mean, key text on liberty, John Stuart Mill, it's not difficult, it's less than 90 pages. And he says it all in what, what 1859 or something. When an idiot speaks, listen to them. When you've heard it all before, listen to them. You could be wrong. Now, don't listen to them for too long, you know. But right, and don't have it, and don't have such an open mind that your brain leaks out, like Carl Sagan is uh, like to, to say, right? Exactly. Uh, th these these are important maxims, you know. But but yeah, you're absolutely right to you know stop at that point and say yeah, th there's there's a spectrum and. To some extent, it could be said that there is an aspect of dominance in all communication, that I am seeking to persuade people watching of certain ideas. But what I'm seeking them to persuade them of is not to dominate other people, right. not to trust authorities like me, to not to trust Wikipedia necessarily, but to, you know, as you say, on general subjects, it's extraordinarily good. If you look up the cult group pages on Wikipedia, they are actually rewriting them. So it's not the, the commons approach to that is dangerous. You do at times need experts, you need people who actually know what they're talking about. And but finding, you know, being able to test authority and say, how much does this person know? The thing I really loved when I left Scientology was that I could challenge all of it. So um, yeah, we'd got Adele Davis, let's eat right to stay stupid or, or whatever. <laughs> right. We find out when we research Adele Davis that she lost a court case very seriously because uh, a young person had died because of following her advice. And it came out during that case that she did indeed hire a lot of researchers. But what they were meant to do was to find every paper published on a subject so she could list it at the end of her book. She didn't read the papers and her advice was absolute nonsense. But in Scientology, it was a gospel. So That's it was right. lovely being able to come out and read a professor of nutrition's book about it, a guy called Bender, who was at one of the London schools, um, and, and, and then be able to read anything I liked and to always say, if I feel passionately about something, I must read an opposing view. Now, Recently, this last year, I've been reading about Holocaust denial because it fascinates me that anybody could believe that there was not a massacre of the Jews, the Romanis, the Blacks, the Communists in 
under the Nazis in Europe. There is more, there are more witnesses to that. There's more evidence to that than any other event in history. There are well over 100,000 witness testimonies and they come from all sides. But you know, last, last year, a friend of mine put forward the view that there had been no Holocaust. And so I went off and spent three days looking through, you know, I went through this years and years ago. So I've got transcripts of Nuremberg and I got all sorts of horrible things in my house that you wouldn't want to look at. Um, I couldn't find my copy of the Skeptical Inquirer, which beautifully took it apart. So eventually I ended up reading Michael Shermer and uh, Grobman's uh, book, uh, Denying the Holocaust, which is pretty thorough. And, you know, it's meant to be the great challenge. You know, I can talk a Scientologist out of Scientology in a day. It's meant to be the most invasive cult. I've been told that, you know, of the however many thousand there are, the most difficult to deal with. Well, I have often been, you know, I haven't done it for many years, but I've got to the point where everybody I talk to, at the end of the day, and you only have a day, nowadays you've got cell phones so they can wander off on you. But at the end of the day, everybody I talked to over a four or five year period who didn't just leave the room screaming because I was John Atac, everybody I talked to decided that they didn't want to do it anymore. None of them joined the independence. None of them had any kind of collapse or, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, they just went, oh yeah. And when one of them, a, a TV crew came to interview this guy, and uh, you know, I normally wouldn't allow any kind of access to somebody I'd talk to, but I talked to him first and he said, yeah, I'm fine, I'll talk to them. He'd not been in, he'd only been in for a few weeks, you know. And the TV crew came and they said, right, okay, so what happened? And he said, well, this guy came round and we had a cup of tea and we had a conversation and I decided it was rubbish. And they went, we're not filming you. Didn't he kidnap you, you know, didn't he beat you up, didn't he? So, but I got to that, but can I now get to the point where I can sit down with a Holocaust denier? Because what you're doing is not a, it's not a conversation about facts and evidence. It's a conversation about culture. You know, they are in a culture that says this is wrong. And they might be going, well, hollow means whole, coarsed means burning. They weren't all burned. Which right. uh, right. Mike God, I'm afraid, has recently put up a couple of days ago on his Facebook page. And it's like, yeah, if you look to the Oxford Dictionary, Mike, and I did, the word Holocaust meant the destruction of everything from the 17th century onwards. You don't have to burn it. And you know, the evidence is overwhelming, but people go into a culture. I wrote a, a chapter for the Oxford University Press, along with Steve Hassan earlier this year, and it meant diving deep into the life of Dylan Roof, who walked into a church and shot nine black people. And in his, um, plus the internet, his manifesto is called The Last Redition, and it's still up there. No censorship on the internet. And uh, well worth reading, because it's quite short. Um, also did Elliot Roger, and trying to, he published so much material. But Dylan Roof, you just got uh, nine pages, I think. And in it, he says that he's looked at websites and he's found that slaves actually preferred being slaves. They liked it. And um, I'm kind of going, look up the term a Derby dose, Dylan. I, I'm not going to say any more about what that is. And if you are squeamish, don't look it up. 
This was a practice used against slaves, and I don't think they liked it. Look at the photographs of the backs of whipped slaves, you know, and try and convince me that the fantastic you know, jazz performers, athletes, and academics who have come out of the Afro-American community, and indeed out of the African community and the Afro-British community, are not great genius musicians like Louis Armstrong and Sammy Moore, genius athletes like the Williams sisters, who happen to be Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way, um, or genius academics. And we've, we've got to, you know, it, it's a ridiculous nonsense, which is held up by a cultural view, not by, well, as I say, who would you rather believe, me or your own eyes? Getting people to be able to look at things and getting them to let go of the emotional attachment to their views, which is what causes the cognitive dissonance. You know, um, there's a guy, I mentioned him often in Ken Burns Jazz, there's a, a white jazz critic who's about 70 and he says, oh, I was a kid, I grew up in the deep south, and he's taught that black people were a different species. And it's like, well, they're not a different species, we could interbreed, I'm afraid that's what a species is. So it's, you know, sorry, that's wrong. Um, but I was taught that they were sort of apes or something like this. You know, that what's this, the cross between the gorilla and the man? I mean, did the gorilla fancy the white man or did the white man fancy the gorilla? It's hard to say. Um, just so disgusting, the stuff crazy. he says. And he said, Ugh. one night he went into a club, he's a young man, and there was a man on the stage playing the trumpet. And he went, this is the only genius I've ever seen in my life. And that man was, was Louis Armstrong. And... It's just, but people get into the culture where I was taught that, you know, anybody who is not a member of the Mormons is sinful. Anybody right. who's gay is evil. You know, that these set of rules and regulations, and we all, all the time need to be questioning those things because that's the, the social brainwashing. That's the, you know, and I always come back to Eric Fromm, the great Eric Fromm, the wonderful Eric Fromm, Escape from Freedom, The Art of Loving, books that everybody should read, um, that he talked about people being life-affirming or life-denying. And we live in a society where nearly all of our leaders are narcissistically life-denying. They only care about whether they're being adulated and they stomp out of the room if people don't, don't love them. Because as Eric Fromm says, Freud was wrong. It's not that they don't love anybody else. They only love themselves. It's that they don't know what love is. They don't love themselves. Like Ron Hubbard. Ron, Ron Hubbard would often go off and cry, really cry, because he, he'd not been adulated enough. I'm told that towards the end of his life, the only statistic he really cared about was how many minutes of applause there were to his picture at the end of a, an event. Oh, come on. That's so sad. You it's know? pathetic. Yeah. It's pathetic. And that's an interesting point about love, by the way. Yeah. It, that's a very interesting point. From it from is he gives us so much malignant narcissism comes from from. He's the first yeah. to talk. The pseudo self, yeah. where people want other people to approve of them and that that's all they're trying to do, keeping up with the Joneses or what have you. That's from. Um Brilliant. Uh, and he's got some good points there because that's that's a uh, very, very deep motivation for people. Yeah. And and this word culture that you're using connected to cult is is uh, is brilliant because it's we we often uh, use, you know, bubble world. 
you know, prison of belief, you know, uh, echo chamber. You know, we talk about these terms, derogatory terms, all of them. Um, but we are talking about a culture. I mean, it, it, exactly what you said. It follows all the rules. Yeah. And you know? and there are cultures functioning within cultures and overlapping cultures. And the, 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 you see a culture go wrong. I, I love the ideas in the Christian teaching about... Um, you know, not hurting people and and being considerate, you know, treat the golden rule, which, of course, originates in Buddhism 500 years before, but let's not worry about that. Um, these are if, great... You know, if Jesus wanted to give it a, mag, uh, a microphone or a magnaphone, you know, mega, mega horn or whatever, bullhorn, and shout that to the world, go right ahead. Yeah, I have a lot more trouble with the idea that he came to set father against son, he came with a sword, that he came right. to separate the wheat from the chaff, and I, you know, my view is that it's rather than, you know, I hate that. I've heard this. I've heard a, a minister who got very angry with one of my friends because she said she preferred the King James Bible. And he said, this is the received word of God. We want the most accurate translation. I'm going the received word of God. What we know historically, and, and this is a tangent, is that the book of Genesis, the earliest possible version for the Habiru, the Hebrew people, yeah, is 900 BC. It's just my nature. It's 900 BC. We've got Babylonian ring seals that are 1,500 years earlier that show the story of the Garden of Eden. And the goddess, using her agent, the serpent, invites humanity into the garden, which has date palms, because the apple hadn't come from Afghanistan yet, to share of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. What is wrong about knowing about good and evil? So, you know, I mean, Yuval gets even quite savage about it. That, that uh, if you look so at do the, I. Well, I have at, I have a very harsh critique of that entire philosophy, but I'm fascinated by its historical antecedents and what you just mm -hmm. said. That's very very interesting. I'm always fascinated by the history of a thing, the derivation of a thing. Maybe that came even from Scientology a little bit because every single word I ever had to look up, I had to clear the derivation, right? The etymology. Yeah, the, et the etymology. I, I mean, and you could dig into I that. I was doing you know? that before I met Hubbard, so. Yeah, I, I, and I wasn't, you know. Recommend the uh, history of religion by Machia Eliada. Um, you know, Joseph Campbell's pretty good, but, you know, has some interesting stuff. But Machia Eliada was an incredible historian of religion who his own life is phenomenal at 14 he writes a book about entomology insects by the time he's 20 he's in, in this is in the 1930s he is a guru a yoga guru in the himalayas he goes on to become professor of religious studies at chicago university and he sews together this history, I mean, you can then get into the Masks of God, which is four, 500 page volumes by, by Campbell. But Eliade is, it's fascinating to go, oh, these are stories. And as Campbell says, mythology is not history, it's psychology. And the under, you know, it's where Dawkins and I disagree because I think there is a great deal to be learned from religion, but you don't have to believe it. You know, it can give you insight without believing it i um, agree with that throwing away the bathwater with the baby if you like yeah exactly and that's why i always and that's why i think at the end of the day 
you can't lose with tolerance and compassion and understanding. You can't lose with it. You know what I mean? You you, you, you personally, even you if even if they come, even if Jack. Well, you, you can't live without it, but no, but you also you can't win without it. You can't win without. Well, it. yeah, it, well, exactly, because even if the jackbooted thugs come come, you know, tearing down my door to kill me because I'm too compassionate or too tolerant or whatever, I've lived my life on my terms, you know, and I chose kindness. I chose love. I chose yes. to be kind to people and to tolerate people and to let people believe what they want and not, you know, and sure, push back a little bit, talk about it, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to go lining people up against a stone wall and shooting them because they think something different than I do, you know. You tie their I, shoelaces the wrong way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't understand that reference. Well, it's just, you know, how trivial does it have to be? I mean... Oh, right. Yes. Jonathan Swift, the the greatest novelist in all history for me. Gulliver's Travels is the greatest novel I've ever read. And the idea that these two nations have been fighting because one of them break their boiled eggs at the top. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah, right. They're called Big Enders and the others at the bottom. And the movie, uh, the one with um, uh, Ted Danson, Mm-hmm. is actually a, a very accurate the, all of the others forget them but that movie really does capture the book and what swift is talking about you know that that here's a man who understands cults and how it happens and so he's got you know brobdignag and uh, lilliput laputa all of these places you know the rock floating in the air where the intellectuals talk to each other and have to be banged on the head to bring them back again you know uh, he understands the problem Exactly. Well, I, you know, okay. Interesting stuff. Interesting <laughs> and, stuff. And, As, and watch my YouTubes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. We're, yeah, we're going to, we're going to wrap up. I, I hope you guys have enjoyed this out there. You know, this, this, these long extended discussions are awesome for us and I hope they're awesome for you guys. We have covered a lot of territory here and we got into stuff I did not see coming at all. And I'm very, very happy we got into because clarifying even for myself, that business about Mary Sue, I've talked about that a little bit. I've always tried to say it was conjecture on my part. I'm very glad to get more input from you on that because that helps clarify it even more. The position of nibs in the church, all of that history, as well as uh, to talk about Excalibur. I mean, we talked about a lot of Scientology stuff in the middle of all of this and appropriate to the whole concept of brainwashing, actually. So, you know, there you go. <laughs> and Hubbard was a great believer in brainwashing and tried to sell it to John F. Kennedy, as I said, you know. So. Exactly. Exactly. So, all right. Where exactly can people find you on YouTube? How do they find you? Uh, John Atak, family and friends. And, Excellent. Uh, okay. Got- so Google that. Look that up on YouTube. I will post a link in the description section to this video and at sensiblyspeaking.com when, the po- when this podcast posts. Uh, so you guys can click on that and get right to John's YouTube channel. I would also, uh, do you have a blog website or anything like that that they should go to well um the i was with the open minds foundation uh from its inception and so um most of the content of the site and about 120 of my blogs are are to be found there um and of course i've written a bunch of books Exactly. And um, we'll put a we'll put a link to the opening minds to, book. 
to yeah. give you all those. I, I would love it if people would actually go off and read my novels because, you know, they're as discursive as this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, why don't you send me a link to one of them and I'll put that in the description section. But there, are well. only, there are only two that need to, to go up there at the moment. I've got three more that, that will be coming out soon, but, but I'll get Spike to send, yeah, you, send me those lots links. of links, you know. Excellent. Which is a All right, man. word for left. <laughs> Good. Well, thank you for taking the time to have this conversation. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure and a privilege always, Chris. Awesome, man. Yeah. Um, you're just so awesome. All right, uh, guys, any questions, comments, or feedback out there, leave them in the comments section here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. I truly hope you have enjoyed this talk as much as we did and got something out of it. That was the whole point, was just try to help. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye. Thanks so much.